You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 445. Listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door with Yost Captain Jeff broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 30th of September, 2020. In today's episode, a warning from regulators following an Air France uncontained engine failure two years ago. British pilots go after their foreign secretary for flying on a U.S. airline. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, The Wonderful Life of Brian. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 445 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger, an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-new station in the nation, 1010 wins in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guys Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. And joining me today to help with all that is from her lakeside studio in the Carolinas. She's a doctor, a skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and Commercial multi-engine instrument rated backstabbing jumper dumper, Dr. Steph. That is perfect. We need to leave that exactly as it is. I like that very much. I like it. Um, is that New York City clip from that salsa commercial? Yep. Pace. New York City. Pace. New York yeah. City. <laughs> Love that commercial. Me too. Glad to see you guys. Good All right. And also joining us from across the pond, from his studio in the English countryside, Professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired captain for an international airline based in London. It's Captain Nick. Well, good evening from a very soggy United Kingdom. Hi, uh, Jeff and Seth. Lovely to see you. And, of course, looking forward to a great show. Oh, it's going to be like one of our best ever, I'm sure. <laughs> Never. Just wishful thinking. How many best episodes have we had? A uh, lot. Okay. 444, yeah. <laughs> 444. <laughs> anyway, well, you know what we should do before we get into any more trouble? Let's talk about news. Stand by for news. All right. The first item sent in from or by Micah, our main man, uh, two Navy Super Hornets catch fire, make emergency landings within weeks at Oceana. Uh, this is from military.com. Um, a Navy F-A-18 Super Hornet experienced an engine fire, was forced to land at Naval Air Station Oceana, uh, Virginia, on Monday, less than two weeks after a nearly identical mishap at the same air station. According to the Naval Safety Center, the two-seater aircraft made a safe, arrested landing at the Virginia Beach 
Air Station. Commander Jennifer Craig, a Naval Air Force Atlantic spokeswoman. A Naval Air Force? Hmm. Never heard of it referred to that to it that way. Anyway, uh, that the emergency uh, landing took place around noon and involved a Super Hornet from Strike Fighter Squadron VFA-11. The incident took place while training over the Virginia Capes, she said. The aircraft landed safely at NAS Oceana or Oceana without incident. An aviation mishap investigation has been determined or initiated to determine the cause of the accident. There were no injuries. The Navy is still investigating a September 10 mishap involving a different FA-18F Super Hornet, also based at Oceana. That aircraft, attached to VFA-103, experienced an engine fire also in the Virginia Capes region. I guess it must be hot in Virginia Capes, wherever that is. I was going to say, that's the, the common denominator yeah. for this, you know. <laughs> same airplane and same region. I don't know. Yeah. You know, put two and two together. Uh, uh, yeah. Anyway, so um, at this point, according to spokesperson Craig, uh, at this point, it's too early to speculate the causal factors for the in-flight engine fire with both VFA-103 and VFA-11, but an investigation will determine the contributing factors. She added that ongoing training has so far not been affected by the incidents. It's also the third engine fire mishap involving Navy and Marine Corps aircraft this month. On September 3rd, a CH-53 Super Stallion assigned to Marine Corps Air Station, New River, North Carolina, made an emergency landing in the Virginia Capes. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> from the base following an in-flight fire that began shortly after the heavy lift helicopter took off. All four Marines aboard at the same, at the time were safe and uninjured. And that's also under investigation. Well, the uh, safety investigators are find themselves very busy all of a sudden in, in Virginia. Earning their key. Job security. Uh, yep. I love the way they tag completely irrelevant um, mishaps onto <laughs> these things. Like, like there's some connection, but obviously there isn't. I mean, once a damned helicopter. Cool, obviously. Because <laughs> 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 everything that we have on this stupid show. Well, it's not a stupid show. All the stupid news that we have on the show <laughs> uh, do that. They put they add like these things and you're going, well, I know you probably don't know anything about aviation because that reference has nothing to do nothing with to do the others. But OK, yeah. well, at least in this case, it's it's close. <laughs> In the well, same yeah, area. something caught fire. Yeah, something caught fire. Something caught fire. It was something in the air, and it was somewhere in the mid-Atlantic <laughs> exactly. region. So we so, got to give them, I don't know, what do you think? Let's give them the 50%, uh, Liz, if you can no. get that one there yeah, on the screen for I'll us. I'll try and find that. Okay. Yeah, just hang on. Sure. Just give me a second All here. Right. Let's go. There we go. Dun, da, da, da. There you go. They're well nailing it 50% at least. Well <laughs> All right. Anything else really to say about that? No. Uh, until you find out what the problem is. Uh, the only question I've got, I'm interested why they didn't approach an engagement. Why did they do an approach an engagement for an engine fire? Perhaps they have a procedure where they want to land the airplane in an exact spot so that the fire trucks are all sitting there waiting for them. Hmm. But uh, I, an approach and engagement wouldn't normally be required when you're coming back to a land base for a simple engine fire. I don't know. Just more convenient the for the um, firefighting people. Could be, yeah. yeah. They don't want to drive. Done that, but they they want to drive another couple of miles. You're saving fuel. Petrol, saving fuel. They're going green. Yes. Saving the world. Go, <laughs> wait, wait. Did you say, whoop, that's not it. 
<laughs> going green. We're going green. They're going oh, green. I haven't had mm-hmm. that for a while. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't hear it then. Oh, well, let's try it again then. Um, <laughs> turn that baby turn up. Turn the volume up. Here we go. We're going green. I decided just to make a little <laughs> snippet of it. You only get <laughs> just a little bit. Two seconds. Yeah. Nick sorry. was just yeah. getting into it there. I'm sorry. Yeah, she said. Uh, Liz says that you were just getting into it, Nick, and I cut I was, it off. I was going to do some dad dancing. <laughs> oh, good thing we. <laughs> That's why we had to, to stop that. it short. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. All those poor people watching live in the H- chat room. HR right suggested that we cut yeah. that one short to prevent uh, any dad dancing. All right, moving on to B uh, in the news notebook final report accident, uh, an Air France A three eighty dash eight hundred over Greenland on September 30th, 2017 uncontained engine failure fan and engine inlet. There's a picture of it on the screen. If you're watching the video Ouch. and that, yeah, not, not a heck of a lot left of that darn that thing. That whole disc is shit. Isn't yeah. It? You know, remember wow. you know, they were over Greenland, uh, going from, uh, Oh yeah, I do. It shed chunks of it. Um, Los Angeles. Yeah. They, yeah, the, they the, kill a couple of, um, walruses or something uh, probably um <laughs> did you see the big hole that they they had to dig down into like 19 feet of snow to find yeah oh my god thing? i guess it was quite hot and it just melted its way down didn't or it? i don't know i think by the time because it was a, a couple of years i think that they were uh, that passed before they were able to find it and i think it's just that greenland got that much snow Wow. Over that time. They had a bunch of guys from Florida up there with their metal detectors. Yep. They had a, uh, Liz says that they had a whole bunch of guys up there from Florida with their metal detectors. That might be why it took them so long. <laughs> because all they brought with them were, were flip flops. Up in their shorts and Bermuda shirts. Yeah. In the middle of they could only, they could go only out for like a, a couple of minutes at a time. <laughs> so, a brief search. A yeah. brief search, yes. Anyway, so you remember that incident. The thing, it was yeah, the I number four that. engine yeah. and it took off the whole inlet of the engine and everything else. They found the thing. And. So the, this is the final report that was released on September 25th of 2020. And what they found was, uh, let's see, what's the new, let's see. The examination of the fan hub fragment located in Greenland found that a cold dwell fatigue phenomenon caused the development and progression of a crack in the subsurface of a blade slot bottom. Neither the manufacturer nor the certification authorities had anticipated this phenomenon in this alloy during the design of the engine. And uh, let's see, the engine designers, manufacturers, lack of knowledge of the cold dwell fatigue phenomenon in the titanium alloy TI-6-4 was one of the uh, factors that contributed or may have contributed to the failure of the fan hub on engine number four. Uh, absence of instructions from the certification bodies about taking into account, into account macro zones and the cold dwell fatigue phenomenon in the critical parts of an engine when demonstrating conformity. Hmm. Uh, absence of a non-destructive means to detect the presence of unusual macro zones and titanium alloy parts and an increase in the risk of having large macro zones with increased intensity in the TI-6-4 due to bigger <laughs> engines and, in particular, bigger fans. Hey, mm. did somebody say big fan? <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Just regular big fans. Oh, not it must have been Greg. Fans. Greg must have designed that. <laughs> Wait a minute. There I am. There are a couple of, uh, there are three <laughs> big X's on the screen. <laughs> oh, my. Okay. I'm really worried about Nick's titanium bottle opener. Might have cold oh, valve fatigue. Liz is making a very good point. She is kind of concerned, Nick, of the titanium um bottle opener that you have that might have some oh, my, sort of my a, new, uh, some yes, cold dwell fatigue. a cold dwell fatigue phenomenon. Yeah, well, luckily macrozone. the blade wasn't the thing that failed there. Oh, it was true. the housing that uh, has the blade. So, um, and I didn't have to go to Greenland to go and find it. So that's another good thing. Yeah. But if you had that, co- that beer would be very cold. <laughs> Icy <laughs> yes, cold. Icy cold. Yes, for sure. Uh, very nice. So sure. I guess they're going to put out, something to operators not not a lot of operators of the uh, airbus a380 anymore but uh, that they should emirates and singapore emirates and singapore uh, liz tells us and uh, that they're going to need to uh, perhaps um you know do some investigate or uh, inspections of said hubs to make well, sure that they don't the engine manufacturer uh, whoever this anonymous uh, person is well uh, <laughs> we'll have to call them in and take a look at them it's a rolls royce engine isn't it I'm not sure. I think it is. I'm not willing to commit. Oh, myself. come on. We, we got to know. <laughs> well, somebody in the chat room knows um, for sure. Did it not say in the article? Uh, well, I was no. looking. I didn't see oh, any no, mention say, of it? the manufacturer. I think they probably are. I think they're Trent yeah. 1000s, but uh, I'm, I'm guessing there. This is not to be included in the 50%. The bit I liked was um, the, the crew criticized the uh, software on the aircraft saying that when you get an engine failure, the software comes up and tells you what your maximum cruising height will now be. And uh, their indication was that the cruising height was uh, 7,000 feet too high. They, they couldn't maintain that cruising height suggested by the software, so they had to go down another 7,000 feet till they could stabilize. Uh, and um, they had forgotten that that cruising height is predicated on a windmilling engine and once you've got an engine yeah. that's completely disintegrated <laughs> it's like a parachute out a, there right yeah you, exactly <laughs> like you've got a barn door suddenly tagged onto your wing mm. that that engine height is not going to be uh yes steph please so it, it does say in the article in the very first sentence um oh. an a380 equipped with ea gp7270 engines ea yeah what is that engine alliance I don't know. I had to look it up. Oh, I don't know. Perhaps, perhaps you're doing, you, Jeffrey, perhaps you, Jeffrey, are yeah. doing rollers a uh, disservice there. I don't know. I, I, I might be. Uh, let's see. Engine Alliance GP7000 is a joint, joint venture. Between, venture. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. You, you, you said Joint it. venture between General Electric Aviation and Pratt & Whitney. Oh, oh, oh well, there you rubbish. go. It's an American problem. <laughs> I see. Okay. Could be Canadian. Yeah, right. Okay. Huh. Well, I also had questions about what cold dwell fatigue was, but that's really um, delving into some physics there. That's when you hang about between... on Greenland <laughs> so long that you get very tired. Yes, exactly. Do you really yeah. know stuff? What what that is? Do I know what it is? Yeah. Did I know before this? No, I did yeah. not. Know. Oh, okay. So, okay. I thought, um, wow. I can I read mean, two sentences here that might actually explain it without us getting us into why trouble here. It says, dwell fatigue, not cold, but dwell fatigue refers to the reduction in the fatigue lifetime of a component. Um, 
generally as the result of exposing the component to a constant high mean stress. Um, and also between ramping up the load during takeoff and ramping it down on landing. The cold part refers to the fact that the phenomenon happens at temperatures around 100 degrees Celsius or less in a relatively cold part of the engine. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, yeah. Relatively cold. Because 100 degrees relative, yeah, relative, Celsius relative is, cool. is not cold. It's, it's really hot. <laughs> it's very yeah. hot. If you touch it, I would I would bet that it's going to burn your finger. It's going to burn. Yeah. yeah. Don't touch it. Yeah, don't touch. That's our our public service announcement of today. At least our first don't one. Don't touch that. Yeah, don't touch that. Don't touch <laughs> boom, that. Boom, 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 boom. Boom, boom. Boom, boom. Don't touch, touch that. that. All right. Let's move on to something, I don't know, as equally as interesting as that. Uh, actually, this is an interesting one. Um, item C, Airprox serious incident involving a Boeing 737-8K2 and uh, another airplane, um, 737 seven, so a 737-700 and a 737-800 were involved. Let's see, the KLM was the 700 and the Transavia was the 800. We're involved in a serious airprox incident at Amsterdam Schiphol International Airport in the Netherlands. And KLM flight 1080 was approaching runway 18 center for landing when the flight crew radioed that they were executing a go-around. At that time, the runway controller had already issued clearance to Transavia Flight 5193 to Paris Orly, a Boeing 737-800, to start its takeoff from runway 24. The runway controller wanted to instruct this aircraft to abort its takeoff, but because the wrong flight number was used in the instruction to abort the takeoff, the crew did not respond to the instruction, and the aircraft took off. The runway controller recognized the potential conflict and issued instructions to both the Boeing 737-700 and the Boeing 737-800 to perform divergent turns in order to establish a greater separation between the two aircraft. The crews of both aircraft immediately complied with these instructions, also because they had themselves recognized the potentially hazardous situation. The closest separation between the, the two aircraft was around 960 meters about a point, a half a mile, half a nautical mile horizontal and 300 feet vertical. And the Dutch safety board has arrived at the following conclusions uh, that this would not have happened if it hadn't involved a Boeing 737. <laughs> now, uh, they didn't come to that conclusion. The runway controller observed the aircraft wow. taking off from runway 24 and was conf- I'm just thinking when I'm reading all this, why did they keep, I mean, why am I saying 737 Dash seven hundred and seven thirty seven dash eight hundred. So many darn times we've established at the beginning, haven't we? I that the, these were the type airplanes. We could have said said KLM flight and yeah. Trans-Avia I wish flight. that I had. That actually now. makes it easier to understand because <laughs> then you got to remember which seven thirty seven was. Yeah. Which. Okay. So. Well, the picture shows which. I'll fix it in post. There's a picture that we'll have in the show notes and which is on the screen at the moment if you're watching the video of the uh, converging runways and uh the one taking off and the flight path and the one going around and their flight path and you can see why why it could have been could have been a concern to everyone involved but luckily uh the crews in both flights were paying attention they they were aware of what was happening and complied with the instructions to get divergent uh headings and avoid avoided a collision I'd love to know uh, if there were any restrictions on the air trafficker from issuing a takeoff 
clearance with that other aircraft um, on the approach because that would be an, it had been an easy way to avoid the conflict would have been to have delayed that departure by 30 seconds mm-hmm. uh, until yeah, you were sure that the other aircraft was definitely not going around. Right. That's something you always have to consider. You know, if you're coming in for uh, a landing at a busy airport, especially with converging runways, even if they're not converging, if you're using the same runway um, that somebody else is taking off on, you always have to think about, okay, what's going to happen if, you know, the airplane that's coming in to land behind me um, does something like a go around and, you know, I guess, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. You always have to be aware of the situation and think of things that may happen that you probably won't, but just so that you have some kind of a plan, like an offset. All scenarios. Uh, or yeah, a, a scenario, scenarios. just consider all scenarios in your head to uh, try to mitigate a situation if it presents itself. Well, lo and behold, uh, I'm up with the Dutch safety board here. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I actually, think in the report he said something about <laughs> Yes, I've just read <laughs> okay. the last paragraph, which has the, exactly that conclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, Go ahead and read um, it. Yeah, sure. Uh, allowing reduced separation during the use of dependent takeoff and landing runways. I guess that means ones that converge and have a, a potential hazard, is a procedure procedure which can result in the occurrence of undesirable and potentially hazardous situations, as we just saw here. Aside from the uncertainty about the legitimacy of this procedure, hmm, the question is whether the advantage gained, namely increase in capacity, outweighs the potential hazard that can arise. With that in mind, uh, LVNL, I guess that's the identifier for the airport, I don't, I don't think know. so. I don't know no, what that's Does that's it refer to the air traffic control uh, company? company? Uh, yeah. Could be. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Uh, should maintain the basic rule that takeoff clearance will only be issued after the landing on the dependent runway has actually been confirmed by the runway controller or if the landing aircraft is still at least two miles from the runway threshold. That so there you go. Sounds very sensible. Yeah. I love that sentence. Aside from the uncertainty about the legitimacy of this procedure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Ooh. They're, they're basically saying, we, we have questions. Yeah. Uh, oh, iHallbox says uh, LVNL is the air traffic yeah. control union. Oh, sense. really? So okay. interesting. Yeah. Surely uh, the union doesn't run the air traffic outfit, but there you go. Yeah, but they represent the controllers, I guess. Okay. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Um, glad that people were paying attention and uh, did the right thing. Yeah, but I'd be interested to hear what opposing bases have to say about this. Oh, L, uh, John Jester says that LVNL is the company, not the union. Yeah, it's the um, agency in charge of air traffic. So we have control. a little a little skirmish going on in the uh, live oh, audience. Wait, I'm gonna I'm gonna post what it what it stands for here. Hold on. Okay. Are we gonna uh, put a fifth less than fifty percent penalty on the? Chat room now? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Do we have for. a graphic that Go has ahead, less Nick, than fifty percent. <laughs> I don't yeah. think we do. We'll have to get one. Yeah, we'll we'll have to get one. <laughs> yes. Um, Steph, did you have something to? I put. I put um, oh, what LVNL stands for on the screen? Yeah, could you pronounce so that, please, uh, Nick? No, uh, Nick. Yes, Nick. Well, it's got uh, Lucht, uh, Ver, Kia, Sliding, Nederland. Lucht, Ver, Kia, Sliding. 
I think that was anyway. that was perfect. I thought. I like LVL. <laughs> I think I think Nick got it. Definitely. <laughs> okay. I got something. I don't think. Yeah. I think we're back to fifty percent. Sorry about that. Yeah. Right. All right. Uh, let's continue on with item D in the news. Uh, oh, this is an interesting one. Uh, Nick, did did they make a deal of this uh, over there in the UK? Uh, for a short while, yes. Uh, indeed, the UK did. Foreign Secretary flies United Airlines instead of British Airways. He, uh, when news emerged <gasps> that he flew United Airlines instead of UK flag carrier British Airways, some expressed uh, it's not flag carrier. Uh, uh, according to the um, Live and Let's Fly blog, which is the uh, the authority. I mean, on all these when things. they were a state airline, they were the flag carrier. But when they became a commercial outfit. No, the flag was up for grabs. In fact, they took it off their airplane. They don't even have a, a mild airline, Virgin Atlantic, promptly said, oh, we're going to stick them on our airplane. They so took the we'll flag off the flag their, airline, their airplane? Yeah, they took the Indian Jack off their airplane. Wow. I mean, you know, uh, Acme um, is not a flag carrier, but we have the U.S. flag. Oh, you guys stick the flag on everything. Yeah, we put you, the flag on everything. We're yeah, you can grab it on your like, underpants. Yeah, look, Come on. Well, yeah, I look, mean, look at my oh. – <laughs> look at – the the background and my shirt and everything has like the uh, U.S. flag it is all over super it. Super patriotic today. I'm, not, I'm just kidding. There, I'm not wearing anything patriotic. <laughs> but uh, the point yeah. the point the point is, I mean, yes, he did. Um, my instinct is, if they hadn't have had a go at him for that, they would have had a go at him for not taking the cheapest possible flight and wasting the taxpayers' money. So, really and honestly, you're he's on a no-win situation yeah. here. True, because I I have no doubt that they have a series of airlines they look at, and they, in order to save the taxpayer uh, all the cost of expensive flight, they will try and pick the best deal they can get happens to be with an American carrier, so be it. Having said that, if uh, British Airways want to be the flag carrier, they can offer them a discount and try and beat everyone else's prices, and then this sort of uh, story would I thought it was a scheduling thing, not a pricing mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, Liz thinks that maybe it was more of a scheduling thing than a pricing thing. But, um, Could have been. I'm going to well, take the, yeah. uh, the person that, that does this blog, the Live and Let's Fly blog, um, I'm going to take his advice. My instinct is to dismiss the story as much ado about nothing. So, yeah, I agree. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, moving on. Nice so bit of Shakespeare there. Well done. <laughs> well, I mean, it was him, not me. Um, item E, FedEx seems to add small self-flying planes for remote areas. Or seeks, not seeks. Seeks, yeah. I was thinking that doesn't make any sense because I misread it. That's why it doesn't make any sense. Anyway, we've talked about this company, uh, Reliable Robotics, and what they're doing. That they started off with a, I think a 172 or something, didn't they? Or 152, something something smaller. Small. Yeah. And uh, and then in that when we covered that news item, they also talked about the fact that they were going to install the same kind of a setup in a bigger airplane, a Cessna 208, and we even joked about where where they got the airframes, like you know. From Africa or something like that, I think that somebody said. Um, That's a really cheap old airplane. Yeah, and um, apologies to anybody listening in Africa. Apparently, that there are about five of you. Ahmed. <laughs> Ahmed is one of them, uh, the most notable. Uh, anyway, uh, so I thought, hmm, 
This is interesting. Uh, FedEx Corporation is looking at using small self-flying cargo planes to serve remote areas after experimenting with a technology startup on autonomous aircraft, said Chief Executive, Chief Executive Officer Fred Smith. The effort builds on the courier's work with Silicon Valley's Reliable Robotics, which was founded by veterans of Elon Musk's Space Exploration Technologies Corp. With approval for from the U.S. FAA, Reliable Rob Robotics demonstrated in June a fully automated remote landing of a Cessna 208 Caravan turboprop owned by FedEx. This initiative deals with small turboprop airplanes and, in this particular case, the single-engine C-208, which we're looking at putting in very remote and uninhabited, uninhabited areas as part of our network, he said Monday at FedEx's annual shareholder meeting. FedEx pilots shouldn't be concerned about robots stealing their jobs for now. It would take decades <laughs> for technology to replace humans and piloting large freighters, the CEO said. Yeah, he's going, I know that they're going to be breathing down my back out on this one. Yep, they are. FedEx has no plans to replace its trunk aircraft fleet with autonomous aircraft, said Smith, a former <laughs> pilot in the U.S. Marine Corps. And I might add, on the basis of my 50-plus years of experience in aviation, I think the prospect of large transport aircraft being flown without pilots is highly remote and not something that our crew force should be worried about in the foreseeable future. <laughs> Hey Liz, but you we want to keep working on this. <laughs> yeah. We're going to yeah. keep pursuing can you that it. Picture up again, Liz. There you go. They look. They've dressed that robot in a shirt. <laughs> yes, with wings and <laughs> yes. yeah, he's things. got wings and he's got stripes and everything. Yeah, <laughs> very If the area is uninhabited, Thanks, who needs boxes there? Yeah, Liz makes a point. If these areas are so uninhabited, uninhabited. Why are they who's ordering flying boxes? boxes and why, who's ordering stuff to be delivered to them? Out <laughs> Listen, there? Amazon boxes ship everywhere. Everyone needs a cable. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks. Dang Liz. it. Need this next day, today. Anyway, yeah. I just, uh, when I read this, I'm thinking he seems to be like, like overdoing it on that. Don't, don't worry. Don't worry, guys. You're, you're, you're going to have jobs. We're not, we're not looking to replace you with robots. We're not Much. looking to replace you with robots. <laughs> Just a few of you. Or maybe some of you. Some of you. He protesteth too <laughs> much. Yes. Methinks he protests too much. Protesteth too much. Yeah. All right. F. Wow, we're zipping right on through the news here. Uh, hydrogen plane in zero emission flight. And this is from thetimes.co.uk. Thanks to Nick. Thanks to Nick. And let's see, the world's first full-scale hydrogen plane took to the skies over Britain yesterday in a key step towards the commercial launch of zero-emission flights. The six-seater aircraft took off from Cranfield Airport in Bedfordshire for a, how'd I do? Uh, Very good. Average 50%. Average? Okay. Well, oh, uh, yeah. we met. Okay, hang on, hang on, hang on. Okay. Oops. I should just use the one I have here. It's easier to gain access to. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but it sounds very, really crappy. <laughs> I know it does compared to the sound effect one. Uh, okay. Uh, so in uh, took off from Cranfield Airport in Bedfordshire for a 19-mile demonstration flight powered by hydrogen fuel cell technology. After the 19 miles, the aircraft ran out of um, yeah, fuel crashed. No, it was a precursor to a far more ambitious flight of up to 340 miles. 
the equivalent of London to Edinburgh, which will be made from an airfield in the Orkney Islands before the end of the year. Hydrogen-powered flights have previously been made lightweight, ex- uh, have been made by lightweight experimental aircraft, but experts behind yesterday's operation insisted that it was the first to be made by a commercial-grade plane. The flight was operated by Zero Avia, the U.S.-U.K. aviation company, which is attempting to introduce zero-emission aircraft for commercial passenger operations, package deliveries, and agriculture by 2023. Last September, the U.K. government announced the award of £2.7 million, uh, a grant for the company to drive forward the so-called High Flyer Project, H-Y Flyer Project. The first full-scale hydrogen plane took to the skies over the U.K. Oh, that's a caption for a picture that's not there. Uh, Let's see. It is the latest attempt to find green alternatives to aircraft powered by jet fuel. Aviation accounts for 2% of greenhouse gas emissions, but this is expected to rise dramatically over the next two decades, unless we have another COVID thing. I was going to say, not unless people start (laughs) flying again. I know. Uh, In June, the government announced the establishment of a Jet Zero Council to push its green flight agenda. We're going green. Second time in this show. I know. Robert Quartz, (laughs) the aviation minister, said, Climate change is one of the greatest challenges faced by modern society, and we know we need to go further and faster if we were to make businesses sustainable. Anyway. Uh, Let's see. Several companies are working on the development of electric aircraft with EasyJet seeking to produce a battery powered 120 seat aircraft by the end of the decade. Yeah, that's not going to work. No. Well, they can carry a bunch of batteries. No passengers. (laughs) (laughs) The 120 seats are going to be occupied by all the batteries required to fly the airplane. Many aviation experts doubt, including our own Captain Nick, that (laughs) pure electric long-haul flights are feasible because the batteries needed would be too big and heavy for a large passenger jet. On Monday, Airbus announced its own hydrogen fuel program aiming for full-scale transcontinental flights by 2035. Now, you see, hydrogen fuel is a possibility, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Because you're generating it on board. Mm -hmm. Uh, How safe it's going to be, I don't know. Yeah, hydrogen is the one that's flammable, right? Not helium. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's got to be flammable. But then again, aviation fuel. fuel is <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's the des- the desirable thing, right? Mm-hmm. Or is it inflammable? Uh, inflammable. Well, shoot, I <laughs> I don't know. You uh, English experts you out debate, there, debate this. let us know. Is, so we're saying that flammable and inflammable are probably mean the same. They do mean the same. Okay. Yes. Then what would be not flammable? Unflammable. <laughs> Not flammable. <laughs> or just not flammable. Okay. Yeah. Flammable, easily set on fire. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, by That's the way, why we have um, staff here. <laughs> I, I'm just curious why the hell they're having, they're launching this 350 mile test flight from the Orkneys. I mean, it really is the, I wouldn't say it's the back of beyond, but it's the top end of nothing. Hmm. Um, and uh, you've got to ship all this hydrogen up there. Uh, and then, you know, Scotland doesn't have the, best weather it's going to be you know going to find the right weather window uh so i'm just curious to why the hell they chose the orkneys uh when no idea you know it's it's very it's not the easiest place to get to i'm just curious um and the other thing was uh today we um 
ran a hydrogen plaid train around our tracks in the United Kingdom. So, oh. you know, it's starting to happen. If anybody listening is from the Orkney Islands, please address your concerns to Nick. Well, perhaps you'd like to explain guidance. how you, it is you managed to get this bloke to go up there. I'm just curious. <laughs> I don't know. Did they not uh, contact you before they came up with this plan? Well, I, you know, I would have said Farnborough. Do it from Farnborough. Yeah, me too. And then we'll have it's a big meet up there. Yes. <laughs> At least I could go watch it then. Yeah, that would be very convenient, wouldn't it? Mm. All right. Uh, next item. Now, this is an interesting thing sent to us by several folks who also thought it was interesting, and, and including one of the people that I sing in at my church in the, in the choir, um, one of the sopranos. Her husband sent this to her. She goes, you might want to talk about this on, on your show. And I thought, huh, okay, maybe we will. Uh, it is an airplane called the Solera 500L. Uh, the long-awaited Solera 500L bullet plane is finally revealed, and this is CNN. Not attractive. Travel. Not attractive, Liz says. Are you talking about me or the uh, Solera 500L? Both? Okay. Um, <laughs> I just think they missed the chance to make it just a little bit more like evil cartoonish, you know, with like a smirk <laughs> at the front of it and like eyebrows or something. Oh, yeah, because well. that... The front of it does kind of look sinister, doesn't it? A little bit, yeah. Uh, A mysterious bullet-shaped plane was spotted at the Southern California Logistics Airport near Victorville in April of 2017. Its unusual design prompted immediate speculation, with military website The War Zone being the first to report that the aircraft was the work of California-based auto aviation. That's O-T-T-O, like the auto pilot in the movie Airplane. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Are you and, sure this isn't an April the 1st? No, I know joke? it looks like it, but I don't think it is. And uh, that development was very much under wraps. Now, in the late summer of the strangest year in aviation history, the Solera 500L has finally been revealed to the world with the launch of a new website and a bunch of very cool new photos. What we're looking at is a six-person private craft that promises to fly at jet speeds, but with eight times lower fuel consumption and a range that's twice that of a comparably comparably sized craft. Bold claims indeed. Auto Aviation says on its website that 31 successful test flights have so far been performed with aerodynamic efficiency proven in 2019, bolstering its declaration that the Solera 500L is the most fuel-efficient, commercially viable aircraft in existence. Ooh, quite a bold claim. Uh, the company founded in 2008 and an offshoot of Bill Otto's Auto Laboratories, or Laboratories if you prefer, says that the Solera 500L runs at 18 to 25 miles per gallon fuel economy. Um, gosh, that's about what I get in my Honda Accord uh, compared to the two to three miles per gallon of a comparable jet aircraft. Then there are the modest $328 hourly operating costs, which are about six times lower Uh, and the generous 4,500 nautical mile range. So I guess lower than a a comparably sized jet. And it's a huge range, range. 4,500 nautical miles. Um, Wow. Maximum cruise speed is projected to reach more than 460 miles per hour. Probably about, what, 400 knots, which is not bad. 
Not bad. No, not for a, a simple And so crop. It, the reason why this thing is so efficient is that, and it, it is due to its bullet shape, and uh, it is uh, taking advantage of the lowest amount uh, or the highest degree of laminar flow that they can get out of a, an aircraft this size. And laminar flow, if you're interested in what all that is about. Did we already have this discussion about laminar flow on an earlier episode of the show? It seems to me I'm having deja vu. Maybe Probably. they talked about it in another. You've talked we about, have it talked about, okay, about it before. Okay. But it's an interesting subject. It is. Um, so this is what it's using to get. And also, uh, if you look at the pictures in the show notes, the uh, the engine and propeller in the back is it's mounted in the back of the airplane. So it's a pusher prop. So it kind of stays out of the way of all the laminar flow going on, on the fuselage, this bullet shape or like a flying five blade propeller. Interesting. Pardon me. Five blade propeller. Five blade. The visibility um, from the front looks very limited. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and Liz is saying that the visibility from the front looks like it would be compromised with the Well, yeah, that shape. was going to be my question. How do you land the damn thing? <laughs> I don't know, with with magic boxes or something. I don't know. On the well, water. Yeah, it's just that you can see straight up. Yeah, you can't see much straight in front of you. Or something. I don't know. Yeah, very crazy. Um, and also the, the engine uh, that it employs is a V12. Uh, with uh, six, uh, like two banks, um, obviously a V um, formation, um, six cylinders per bank. And apparently it's designed so that if one of the banks of six cylinders fails for whatever reason, it will still be able to operate with the other bank of six cylinders. So it almost has the same kind of reliability or whatever of redundancy uh, you know, redundancy of a, a twin engine uh, airplane. Interesting. Uh, I wonder if they can them. uncouple the dead cylinders so that I don't think it must be drag. It must have like redundant systems that, you know, you can bo- run both sides mm-hmm. and also that it burns, I believe diesel uh, like biodiesel and jet fuel. Correct. Oh, so interesting. Very interesting. I mean, l- laminate flow aircraft have, been notoriously difficult to um, make because of the incredibly smooth um, surface you need to hold on to laminar flow. Uh, laminar flow is just the very thin uh, flow you get across a wing, very low drag, until the airflow goes through its transition to turbulence, which occurs uh, at the point of maximum thickness of the wing or the fuselage, uh, or if there's any blemishes, and you only need the smallest of blemishes uh, to disturb it. Uh, and that's the, one of the main reasons that it hasn't been a practical, um, a really practical uh, idea. There have never been any true laminar flow aircraft that have been able to uh, use it. So, I mean, if you're going to keep it polished and keep it absolutely pristine and perfect it, it might indeed work but it, it doesn't it remind you a little bit about the Pelagio P180 yeah which looked very similar except that because their wing was in a very similar position right at the back of the cabin um, they had to have some canards on the front to give um, to even out the the problems of having the center of lift so far at the back i'm i'm assuming with their their big engine back there they can somehow keep the center of gravity but i would have thought the center of gravity limitations would have been 
quite difficult on on a design like that. Um, so I, I don't know how successful it's going to be. It looks a very thin wing, doesn't it? Uh, it does. A very super critical, thin, straight yeah. out wing. Almost like and a glider I would have thought wing. the handling characteristics would have been difficult, mm-hmm. to say the least. Lane has an answer to the visibility question um, here. Lane looks like he has an answer to the visibility. Maybe the pilot stands up and looks out the window. Sticks his head out. Lane. Lane. Puts his goggles on and sticks his head out through the window. Like a <laughs> Who let Lane in the in the in the chat room? That's what I'd like to know. Um, so there's a reason why it's just a six passenger vehicle because I guess the larger they make this this thing, you can't keep the laminar the flow. laminar flow. Yeah, you you lose the uh, advantages to low or high laminar flow. Uh, let's see. The company also has visions for the Solera 1000L, which is the Solera 500L scaled up 20. percent so shouldn't it be the Solera 600L? Wouldn't that be 20% greater than 500? Anyway. I'm not good at math. While so maintaining its laminar. Figure that out. Sounds about right. This yeah. means close yeah. to doubling cabin size, allowing more passengers and more freight. Uh, let's see. They The FAA certification and finding a manufacturing facility goes to plan. If that goes to plan, we could see the first commercial deliveries of the Solera 500L by 2025. If air taxis become a reality in the post-COVID era, there are other rivals to the Solera 500L we might one day see in our skies. Uh, Pre-pandemic, Paris announced that it was working with Airbus to introduce flying taxis to the city in time for the 2024 Olympics. Boston-based Transcend Air is also working on competitively priced city-to-city trips in six-person planes, again, with a pre-pandemic launch date of 2024. Also, uh, in January of this year, Uber and Hyundai Hyundai uh, revealed that they are working on a four-seater electric flying vehicle that can be summoned by app. At that time, the prototype was scheduled to be. That's probably more like one of the, like a drone thing, probably right. Uh, I would think so. Like a big drone. Anywho, Micah points out that there was a test aircraft in the sixties. He seems to recall that used suction to um, suck the band, the turbulent boundary layer and try and keep the laminar flow. Uh, oh, attached. like little holes in the skin, like really yeah, tiny. Yeah, literally. Oh, but, but the I idea mean, sucked. Yeah. <laughs> when you get into that level of, it, literally, it was a porous skin and it used to suck all the turbulent flow. Let's <laughs> said that the idea sucked. <laughs> well, it's it's just you once you add all that complexity and you've got to find a power plant to oh. do the sucking. I think uh, it just on a little airplane like this, I don't think that's going to work. This whole show but, is uh, starting to suck. Yeah, I, I don't think it was a very successful concept because we don't see them everywhere, do we? No, we yeah. don't. Eh, it was uh. an idea. And speaking of sucking, um, you should join us sometime in the on the live show uh, in the chat room. You can see us suck live. <laughs> a lot of a lot of sucky people. Or suckier in person. Than okay. In the and audio only. Finally, talking about things that really kind of suck, ideas that suck. Personally, I think this is mm. crazy. Um, the the title. Why passenger jets could soon be flying in formation. And this is from CNN.com. Howard Sletskin. Um, Canadian. Starts off with, oh, is he Canadian? No wonder. Yeah, from Vancouver. Um, (laughs) Birds are the undisputed masters of aerodynamics. 
no matter how many supercomputers and wind tunnel scientists throw at solving flights, thorny calculations, they'll never match the perfection of airborne avians. Uh, Focus Peregrine Falcon. I wonder how long it took him to come up with that sentence. Uh, Focused Peregrine Falcon diving on its prey, a pair of feisty hummingbirds in a territorial dogfight, or a huge albatross soaring effortlessly for days over the ocean are the envy of aerodynamicists and pilots. The airborne cacophony of a huge flock of geese honking away. Well, this guy just wrote this article with his thesaurus opened. Like it could be, or maybe like he just took a break from writing a novel or something, and he was still in that (laughs) mode. I don't know. Just out of writer's school. The airborne cacophony of a huge flock of geese honking away while flying in a perfect V formation is a wonder to see and hear. Just don't stand underneath them. Yeah, (laughs) they fly overhead. Thank you for the sound effects, uh, Nick. Uh, is that me? Sorry. Well, I thought it, I thought it was coming from you, but maybe not. Uh, Steph, did you eat um, burritos or something last night? Maybe. <laughs> no. Nope. It was Taco Tuesday. <laughs> Taco Tuesday. That's right. Anyway, uh, those formations have also provided the inspiration for researchers at Airbus Upnext. Uh, the aircraft manufacturer's future flight demonstration and technology incubator. As far back as a century ago, Avion, 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 scientists began to understand that birds were increasing aerodynamic efficiencies by flying in close formation, taking advantage of the changed airflow in each bird's wake. With that in mind, the Airbus Fellow Flight, no, excuse me, Fellow Fly, F E L L O apostrophe F L Y, Flight Demonstration Project will fly two large commercial aircraft in formation, looking to mimic the energy savings of our feathered friends. And in the show notes, a nice little graphic of this concept. Uh, Let's see. With that in mind, nope, I just read that. Building on test flights in 2016 with an Airbus A380 Megajet and a A350-900 wide-body jetliner, Fellowfly hopes to demonstrate and quantify the aerodynamic efficiencies while developing in-flight operational procedures. Hmm. Initial flight testing with two A350s began in March 2020. The program will be expanded next year to include the involvement of French B and SAS airlines, along with air traffic control and air navigation service providers from France, the UK, and Europe. Uh, According to Dr. Sandra Bauer Schaefer, CEO of Airbus Upnext, it's very, very different from what the military would call formation flight. It's really nothing to do with close formation. An aircraft in flight sheds a core of rotating air from the end of its wings, known as a wingtip vortex. Extremely powerful vortices, especially those generated by large aircraft, have been known to flip smaller planes. Yeah, we've talked about these incidents on the show that have encountered the horizontal tornado of air streaming from behind. Avoiding wake turbulence is part of a student pilot's curriculum, as it will be in the fellow fly demonstration. Pilots are trained not to fly into the vortex of a preceding aircraft, according to uh, Schaefer, an experienced flight test engineer. There will be one and a half to two nautical miles away. They will be one and a half to two nautical miles away from the lead aircraft and slightly offset, which means that they are on the side of the vortex. It's no longer the vortex. It's the smooth current of rotating air, which is next to the vortex. And we use the updraft of this air. And uh, let's see, taking advantage of the free lift and the updraft of air is called wake energy retrieval. Uh, Let's see. Schaefer says that 
upcoming flight trials using two A350s could prove that on long-haul flights, fuel savings of between 5 and 10% may be achieved, which is an enormous number. This is the reason why we want to accelerate it. It's not a product today, but is something we strongly believe in. Yeah, well, they're going to go on and tell, t- tell us a little bit more about the efficiencies that you can gain uh, in, in positioning airplanes like this. However, I think most of us listening to this show at this moment are thinking to, the, to themselves, let's talk about some practicalities here. Um, you know, uh, Nick, and I'm sure many of the people listening to the show have encountered uh, the wake or the wingtip vortices, the wake turbulence of a preceding airplane, and it can really, really um, upset things on a nice stabilized airplane. And if this were if this system were to work, um, it would have to be awfully accurate as far as positioning, uh, because you wouldn't want to accidentally get into the wake of a heavy aircraft at 35,000 feet or whatever, uh, at one and a half to two miles right behind it. Um, that would, you know, that would kind of interrupt your cabin service, I would imagine. It, and, it would rather. So, and you can't see the vortex. No. Uh, so you've got to have some instrument that is in, um, detecting it for you, or you're just going to guess where it is. And my problem is you're a mile and a half, two miles behind. Um, if you're in a significant jet stream that's going across you, uh, that vortex moves. Yep. It seriously moves. It, you know, the airplane's got a crab angle for a start, so when you look at it, it's very hard to work out where the vortex is, and the vortex will drift. Um, so, you know, it's I don't know how they're going to predict exactly where it is. And also, having done lots of military flying in formation, um, if you're the leader, you set your throttles and everyone formates on you, which means uh, all the other guys are throttle bashing all the time to stay in position. And I'm not talking about close formation now. I'm talking about mile, two miles apart. you still got to be able to maintain position. Otherwise, uh, and in this particularly, you could stay in a sort of a one mile, half a mile box. Mm-hmm. Um, so the trail aircraft is may get advantage from their dynamic effect, but are they going to lose that by the fact they're continually having to bash the throttles to hold their position? I don't and know. the fact that in order to achieve this kind of precise formation flying, even in, you know, you, there are going to be times, maybe a lot of time, that you're going to be in instrument me- meteorological conditions. So you're not going to be able to see the other airplane out there. So you're relatively close. You can't see them. So in the military, um, airplanes such as tankers and transport airplanes like the c-17 i know that we had it on the c-141 starlifter Uh, they have something called station keeping equipment so each airplane has its own like independent system to uh, reference each airplane and I, i just don't know if we're there yet as far as that kind of precision and then finally let's just say somebody figures out to get all this exactly right how are you going to coordinate Two flights going from Europe to the United States, uh, maybe different different airlines. Uh, let's say we're waiting at the gate and uh, somebody says oh, we're going to have to take a five minute delay because of catering. What does that mean for the other airplane? Do they have to wait five minutes? You know, because they're, they're going to have to exactly launch. going to be my my question. How are you going to coordinate enough flights to make this? Don't even see worthwhile? how in the world this could possibly work. No, 
I just think no, it's I one agree. Of those, yeah. And the, the saving does not seem that dramatic considering all the potential uh, problems. Yep. I believe you are correct, sir. Anyway, we just thought we'd throw it out there. Interesting, you know, what if we could do this kind of thing? I mean, I, we need that kind of thing. I mean, I it doesn't hurt to keep thinking of no. ways to be more efficient, save right. fuel, be more green. Yes. Did, 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 did you? No, oh, that's not it. Um, how about this? Nope. This one. <laughs> I got to get better at uh, when I, I'm searching for that window on my screen that I don't actually hit one of the sound <laughs> clips <laughs> to make the screen or the window active. <sighs> yeah. Practice makes perfect. And we've only been doing this for 445 shows. <laughs> Maybe by 500, we'll get it right. <laughs> Maybe not. What, Steph? Did you want to say something? No. Okay. No. I was just, I thought 500 sounded optimistic. Like a little, little passive aggressive coming right. up there. Yes. It is. I give it at least 525. <laughs> Thanks. Before we figure it out. Oh, ye of little faith. Mm-hmm. But you know what time it is? It's 519 Eastern Daylight Time in the afternoon. It's also time for you to get to know us and what we've been doing since the last show. And, uh, you know, we always start with the girl. Let's start with the guy. Captain Nick, how have you been? Uh, Very good. Thank you very much. Except for uh, aching muscles and a sore back. But apart from that, I'm fine. Thanks very much. Uh, And from what kind of strenuous activity? uh, Uh, Well, yeah, it's getting down on my hands and knees a lot. Um, I've had uh, two (laughs) photo shoots in the last week. Oh, good. Okay. And when you're photographing dogs, you spend a lot of time in your hands and knees um, getting up, getting down, and jumping around because dogs are very active. And if you're trying to continually move around to get the best angle, uh, you're going to be up and down and around. (laughs) And, you know, my uh, legs don't work quite as well as they used to, and particularly my knees get trifly sore. So, uh, and a lot of um, time sitting here at this damn computer processing pictures because, mm. uh, you know, I've got in the region of 3,000 photographs to process. Wow. So, um, yeah, uh, I've been very busy doing that uh, and trying to nurse my poor broken body. Got another photo shoot coming up. Uh, on Friday. That's a studio shoot. So I'll have uh, my client in the studio behind me uh, and uh, doing some proper portrait work. So that'll be different. At least that's not too bad on me. I'll be able to elevate the dog. I'll stick it on a table or something. Not really. <laughs> no, I'm actually going to uh, find something to raise that because uh, it's only a, it's a little springer and uh, I can't rely on it springing all the time. <laughs> It'll probably get tired. So. Hit the ceiling. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, you know, you're talking about the fact that you um, obviously are a professional photographer um, specializing. Well, let's call me semi-professional. Oh, semi-professional. Because although I do uh, make money from it, it's not like it's an income. A well, income you're, a, you're a very uh, talented photographer. How about that? Well, I enjoy my photography. And, and the reason why I say that, if you're watching the video and you look at the lighting, look look at how well Nick's lighting is. I mean, his the, the exposure he's and everything well else is lighted. like very well, well lit. Lighted. Well, he's very well lit. Yes, that's for sure. He's well lit. But it has nothing to do with the actual lighting in this case. No, I mean, I, I was looking at thinking, I wish that I could 
get my lighting to look like your lighting. Well, I, I got a, a couple of extra panels because most of my lighting was permanently mounted in the ceiling now, mm-hmm. and that was just a bit too top-heavy. So I've got a couple of more panels now. Well, my here. compliments to your lighting setup in your well, studio thank there. you, sir. Thank you. I hope the dog appreciates it. I'm too. sure that uh, he'll have no idea what's going on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but the owner probably The dog will. owner, however, yes. yes, will be very, very pleased. Exactly. Yes. So yes. That's a, you're gonna you're doing that this week, then? Uh, week? Yeah, I, I did uh, one on Saturday. I did one uh, on uh, Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were all day affairs, and then uh, uh, another one on Friday. And I might have one over this weekend as well. It's only going to be a small affair, and I'm not sure I'm going to do it huh. because uh, uh, it's just a bit of a, an effort for a small number of pictures. But we'll see. You're very busy. Busy photographer there. Yes. My indoor lawn bowling season has started. So oh. uh, I'm now occasionally going down to Guildford and bowling indoors at Way Valley, which is a very nice club. Enjoying that. We have that um, indoor bowling thing going on here mm-hmm. in the United States. Ten pin, usually. Yeah. Yes, exactly. A little bit different. Uh, we, than we get less clattering. Doing. You have gutters. <laughs> yeah, do you have gutters? You put the bumpers in the gutters so that don't yeah. end up in the gutter it, after you've had it, a couple of beers. <laughs> well, we do have ditches, uh, but they're a bit like gutters, yes. Hmm. So you can end up in them if you don't want to be in them. What I love yes. is when you put the whatever whatever those things are to like erase the the gutters yeah the, the bumpers the bumpers yeah mm-hmm. so oh that that's what you just said isn't it i did yeah. okay. <laughs> okay never mind i'll fix it in post that's and okay. you get those big launching uh, ramps yeah you get the well. ramp just so that you just roll the ball down the center <laughs> if you can't be bothered to swing your arm <laughs> or of course you just enjoy the game and you're not able to uh, bowl in convention exactly just yes. just get some beers right. and popcorn and just relax and enjoy yeah Actually, my brother was a very keen 10-pin bowler, and he competed uh, within the British Army, and I believe uh, he won the Army Singles Championship. So uh, he was very good. He uh, used to do it a lot. So that's the thing over there, too, then? Sorry? Is that that's a thing over there? Oh, very too. much so, yeah. Oh. Every, you know, every, every big area has got its own bowling alley. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Not nothing quite like the smell of a bowling alley when you when you yeah. walk in. The right? shoes, yeah, it's the very shoes. distinctive. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can smell it right now. No, all, all those public mm. secondhand shoes, uh, and the stuff that they spray in the shoes. Yeah, popcorn. Yeah. and then like the mm-hmm. polishing yeah. stuff for the mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the yeah, oil oil and, on the lanes. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I don't know, and then just, that continuous crashing rattle. Yes, down the back end. Yeah. Is a good comment from Neil. Don't buy a house near a bowling alley. Did the army use shells for pins? <laughs> <laughs> that would, that be a good would idea. have been funny. Not active ones. <laughs> <laughs> and I wouldn't have been surprised. <laughs> All right. Anything else going on, sir? Uh, no. Okay. Very good. Um, Steph, your turn. Mm, okay. Um. So it's been just busy still, but got more vacation coming up here after this week. So looking forward to that very much. Um, yeah. Uh, what day did we do this last week? Wednesday? I think so. Yeah. Same as we've been doing it for a same couple weeks in a row now. Day, same bat same, channel. Same bat time, same bat channel. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I'm trying to think if there was anything really of note or different. 
Any flying? I think so. There was a little bit of flying on Sunday. Mm -hmm. Um, Saturday was not good weather-wise. Very low overcast ceilings for the entire day that really were not forecast to get any better and did not get any better, according to the forecast, or as per the forecast. Wasn't there some Um, sort of milestone that you uh, achieved since the last Yeah, so I did finally get to take the airplane solo. Um, Up until now, I had not had a chance to do that, even though I was signed off on the aircraft, because uh, just scheduling and other things, and I'm not there to take flying away from from the other pilots. So, but yeah, it just worked out that there were, (laughs) there were, um, yeah, it just worked out that way. I'm serious. You are considerate. Not toward well, us, but to other people no, you are. No, no, We've no. heard stories. I, mean, I, re- I reserve it for, you know. People that you like. <laughs> gotcha. So, yeah, so that was that was good. Yeah, um, yeah it's just every time I've, I've gone out flying, there's always been uh, someone else there who's been, it's been their day to fly, not mine, but they're nice enough to let me usually come along and get time and experience in the aircraft. So, yeah, finally had a chance to solo the aircraft in the Kodiak. Neat. So it was very Now, nice. when you say solo, were there other people on the airplane? Like yes. I mean, solo, jumpers? like, I was the only... Pilot. Yeah. Pilot. Gotcha. Yeah. And then after so everybody it, jumped out, then you were solo. Then I was solo in the aircraft, yeah. 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 For about Does it actually fly yeah. like a bear? I mean, is that yes. why it's called a Zodiac? Or a, or a Kodiak. That's the, that's the Kodiak, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> That's like your astrology uh, stuff. <laughs> yeah. There's a bear out there. Does it the fly like a bear? Sky? No, it flies like an airplane. Oh, okay. <laughs> Bears don't <laughs> fly very well. <laughs> well, that's why no, I was wondering. No, they're, they're not terribly aerodynamic, but that picture that you sent uh, with the bear and the other little bear sitting on it almost was like a little bear skydiver going to jump off oh, the ice. We have something later in the show that involves an animal and flying, an animal that normally doesn't fly. Uh-oh. Just stay tuned. Oh, I, I know There's what you're teaser. talking about. Yeah, this is actually great. I laughed very much at this. Um, I did not know that this was in this episode, but yeah, or this, uh, yeah. So yeah, that was that was good. That was really nice. Um, so several loads of of jumpers, just with me as PIC and no one else there to tell me what to do or not to do or or whatever. Yeah, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anything else? I don't think so. Okay. Not that Sorry, you it's been, it's been, this week has been trying already. <laughs> okay. So. Hey, at least I'm not getting that, uh, uh, that PA stare that I got last week from you. So that's, you're in a much better mood. <laughs> Feeling less passive aggressive today, for sure. <laughs> I know. I can tell. I like it. I like this, yeah. this new stuff. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, all right. You know, Steph, I was just thinking if I was doing my first solo and all the passengers got off halfway through the flight, I'd probably be a bit insulted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what am I doing wrong? <laughs> See, but I get to tell them when to get out. Oh, you do? Ah, well, light switch okay. control. Something that we okay, go never now. got a chance to do, Nick. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you love get off. <laughs> like, I'd really appreciate it if you just get out now so I can go back and line yeah. up. Oh, There's a bunch right. of passes at um, 6,000 feet, though, because they were doing a canopy coaching course, so they don't need full altitude. The whole goal is just to get out and be under canopy immediately. So descending from 6,000 feet in the Kodiak is a very quick descent back to the, the airport. So it wasn't a whole right. lot of time that I was actually solo, solo in the aircraft. Short and sweet. Can you sort of point it at the ground and put the props in reverse? Don't put the props in reverse, <laughs> but point it at the ground, yes. Huh. <laughs> I thought it might go down quicker if you put the props <laughs> yeah. in the prop. I should say in reverse. Not recommended. Okay. That's a shame. Might be kind of a... Not on this aircraft. Not a good anyway. ride. I think we talked about 
that smooth. Well, there's no one else on the airplane, so who cares what the ride's like? Well, if you want to use the airplane again, uh, <laughs> not want to do that. So, hey, last week uh, I told you about the fact that I met up with Armando, and I, yes. I did it again. Um, just uh, what was like it? A habit. Monday, just a couple of days ago, um, got together with him and three other boutique errors. <laughs> well, that sounds wrong. Error, not error, E-R-R-O-R, but A-I-R-E-R-S, errors. Let's just say people that work at that same company um, accompanied Armando to the New Realm Brewing Company or New Realm Brew Pub or whatever it's called on the uh, in the Ponce Highlands area of uh, Atlanta. It's very, very, uh, what's the word? It's a uh, posh. It's a, Posh, not posh, just kind of a, a very popular place, um, very Trendy. close to downtown Atlanta. Anyway, um, and had a nice meal and really good beer and great conversation as always. Didn't record anything, uh, but I just wanted to uh, do a shout out to um, the captain that uh, Armando was flying with on his last trip, uh, Ryan. And uh, the other uh, couple that was with us there, Eric and his fiance Montana, and they're to be married in I don't know a little over a week I think, so they're 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 soon to be newlyweds. And uh, anyway, I mentioned just now that uh, that was Armando's last trip, as far as I know, with uh, boutique, and he's going to be starting a new endeavor, a new um, job, and a new chapter in his his uh, career, and. Uh, Look forward to hearing more about that. I'm not sure how much he has shared about that yet or how how much he wants to share at this point. So I'll just say that. Enough of that, right? Yeah. And, yeah we're looking forward to, to, we're wishing him uh, good luck in his next uh, career endeavors here. And hopefully we'll hear a little bit more about it when he is, when it's appropriate to do so. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. It seems like, it sounds like a really, really good opportunity for him. So he's, he's very excited about it. And, uh, let's see. Oh, Hmm. Well, you know, we always shoot for 50% here on the show. And, uh, one of our, um, one of our favorite feedback people, <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. Um, yeah, he's the one that sent us the feedback about the, uh, counter or the critical engine. Right. And we, I kind of flubbed that up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that was, we had a second go at it. Fun. It was much more accurate the second time. And uh, so Greg Peterson from the very large donkey fan company uh, says, sending some feedback in, even though I know that I've been banned. <laughs> yeah, Liz, <laughs> how did that? How did that get through? I'd like to know. Sorry, Jeff. And she's she's apologizing. Okay. Anyway, he says, I'm trying to keep you above fifty percent. After Liz made the comment about whether it was purple haze, I guess we were talking about that. Um, was it a flybee? Flybee. Flybee um, one ninety five. Yeah, something. Um, evacuation. I, actually, I forget. And uh, so there was. Uh, there they they evacuated because of the haze in the cabin in the cockpit. And Liz said, "You know, is it purple haze?" She said. He said, "I thought I heard someone ask if Prince was on the plane. Purple haze was by Jimi Hendrix." Purple Rain was by Prince. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, after we said that, I went, I don't think that was right. <laughs> but I couldn't. 
well, my finger on why. Um, well, I thought we had some other correspondence from him. Didn't we have some back and forth, um, Liz? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me uh, see if I can dig that up. And because we, we had some fun with this. Um, and uh, basically, I'll just I'll summarize what happened in the exchange. I, I wrote back to him and said that, yes, um, we we apologize for that horrible mistake that Liz made. And then um, I, we started to do some investigation, just like the NTSB. Uh, it would be the <laughs> APG SB uh, investigated and found out that um, Liz was not at fault. Uh, she is not the Phew. one who said it was Prince. Um, so she she is exonerated. And um, I think that involved two other hosts of, of the show and, and not including me. <laughs> wait a minute he's just gonna leave me to, here to, what to happened take the to nick alone? he's gone i think it's very telling that she's wearing purple today yeah you are wearing purple today yeah uh, is that admission of guilt i think maybe um actually when when Co- i received this email from from him i'm thinking that i was the one that actually said it but then apparently not so i lucked out for somehow for, for some reason <sighs> I, I i didn't make an error <laughs> which is kind of unusual anyway um so he said something about um sitting on the um the donkey of shame oh there i am sitting on the donkey of shame uh, at the uh, the big ass fan company in Lexington, Kentucky. That was when Nick and I last year made a visit. And thank you for that very flattering photo of me, Nick. Do appreciate that. No problem at all, yeah. sir. As I was using all my talents there. Yes, you were. Yeah, he was complimenting you earlier. Yeah. <laughs> complimenting you again. He said thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that was. Uh, that was an it was a fun exchange and thank oh, you very Jeff much. Jeff on Greg. the donkey of shame. <laughs> it was on, but now you and Steph need to sit on atop the well, donkey. Greg will have to fly me over for that. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Anyway, thank you, Greg, for uh, keeping a keen ear and uh, correcting all of our mistakes. We do appreciate it. Did that sound sarcastic enough? No. No. All right. That is all I have. Um, next week. How's the I studying going? Begin, studying? Yeah, I've been doing a lot of studying because next week my training begins uh, for the MD-95 Boeing 717 DC-9-95. Um, <laughs> so I'll keep everybody informed of how that's going and uh, still have more studying to go before I present myself to be thrashed about in the uh, simulator. So. Uh, the thing will, it's going to be basically very similar, almost identical to what, um, Dana has been, has just gone through and, uh, he's been giving us some audio uh, clips regarding it. In fact, we have another one, uh, part two today, uh, that he's going to talk a little bit about what's, what happened in the uh, simulator for training on the 737. So I'm going to be going through the same sort of thing on a different airplane, um, next week. So that's all, that's all I have. All right. With that, I think that uh, perhaps we should do the coffee fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. 
I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh, yeah. Coffee Fun. That's uh, Jeff Smith singing the APG Java Jive. Coffee Fund is your way to support the show financially. And Liz, I think we have a overlay to indicate those who have utilized the Coffee Fund classic method since the last episode. And those fine folks are Tim, Alistair, David, Jason, Richard, and Vignier. Um, again, the uh, Coffee Fund classic method, uh, basically a PayPal, PayPal donation page. You can do a recurring contributions with that, or you can make one-time contributions, your choice. So check that out. And the other way to do it is via Patreon. You can become a patron of the show via Patreon. And we have a couple of new producers. One um, regular producer, Seth Anderson. Thank you, Seth. And a new executive producer, Zach Berger. So check out Patreon by heading over to patreon.com slash airline pilot guy or if you want to check out both ways to become part of the coffee fun cadre that's airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee you'll be glad you did we will too captain incoming message and we had just mentioned the fact that uh, Dana has been sending us in some audio clips regarding his training experience. And we're going to start off this week's feedback with the uh, second installment of Dana's 737 training. So take it away, Dana. Well, hello there, APG community, Captain Jeff and crew. It's Dana here, and uh, just checking in with you, my second uh, recording of this series. And I say series because I think I've decided, instead of trying to rush through everything, because now I'm getting to the meat of the course, uh, I'm going to go ahead and take my time and and give uh, some short segments here, about 10 minutes long each. Uh, discussing the different uh, different scenarios that I went through in, in the training, because I'm sure most of you will find it very interesting. Anyways, uh, this series that I am going to talk about is the maneuvers validation. I think I alluded to that earlier in the original uh, recording. And uh, the maneuvers validation is when you really start to learn how the aircraft flies. And also, by the way, it's the first time I actually step into the cockpit. It seems as though... Um, I talked about it before in that I was talking about the procedures trainers. Those are basically, um, you know, f- the flat panel displays um, with the center console and the overhead panel. It's not the actual cockpit. And uh, what what it's like is, is you basically take an office chair and pull up into it and work on all your, your flows. So this is uh, in my first series here uh, was first time I went into the cockpit and got to discover whether my uh, uh, a very small frame torso would fit inside the uh, cockpit. And actually, it's not too bad. It's a lot more uh, pleasant than I it, I remembered. And of course, I never spent that much time up there. So um, this is when I discovered, yeah, this actually may work. It's a little tighter, probably about a foot narrower than the Mad Dog. But there's a lot of things I'll discuss a little later on about the airplane as I go through this 
these series of talks uh, as to what I enjoy uh, about the aircraft and some of the uh, positives that I found with it. So anyways, uh, talking about uh, the, the series is uh, six segments um, uh, through training that I'm going to try to get through in an orderly fashion. What I've decided is I'm not going to rush through uh, all of the uh, all of the training and just trying to get through three segments and instead of me uh, just blowing right through everything i figured i'd take everything uh, kind of slow because it did take me four uh well actually five weeks in total to uh, go ahead and get through training so why rush through all that anyway so talking uh, about my uh series of uh, maneuvers validations that's when we're really learning how to fly the aircraft now, the first lesson that I had was uh, uh, non-motion. So we did not go, come up on motion. And we're kind of merging from the um, uh, procedures environment to the, the sim environment. And, and it's kind of, it's really, you go from kind of thinking from all the way from time you get on the aircraft, and that's a pre-flight, all the way through the time you land and get to the gate. And that's what you're doing when you're working on all your flows. Then when you get into the maneuvers, you kind of put right at the end of the runway. You're sitting at the end of the runway, engines running, no checklist, pretty much a before takeoff checklist, and let's go. So some of the maneuvers that I saw, uh, my first airport that I got to see uh, in the simulator and the previous, uh, um, the FTD and uh, flight train devices did not have visuals. So... Um, the uh, simulator, of course, now has visuals, so it it was it was really a nice experience to go from from that uh, previous world into the simulator. And first thing that I got to see was a TCAS RA uh, right off the right off the takeoff. Uh, we got a traffic alert and collision avoidance system. That's what TCAS is. Um, so we had to do a uh, both a, a you know, there are two of us, so one of us did the descending, one one of us did the climbing. And basically what it is is your vertical speed indicator will, will light up and tell you, uh, you know, either to increase or decrease your descent rate uh, and not be in the red zone. Um, and the red zone TCAS is where the... the, the um, uh, the vertical speed indicator, excuse me, is where you don't want to be. And then, um, interestingly enough, on the flight display, uh, the um, primary flight display on the uh, 737 also gives you that type of indication. So you really don't have to move your eyes very far to uh, have that information in front of you. So we avoided the uh, the the um, traffic conflict and just uh, did our, our recovery maneuver and then went on. Then we went on to approaches. And the first approach that I get to see is what's called an RNAV approach. Now, if you don't know what an RNAV approach is, is basically it marries the LNAV, lateral navigation, and R, uh, the uh, LNAV, and it uses the VNAV as well. So it marries both of the things we had that we have on the uh, the 737 into uh, into one, which allows us to do a really nice non-precision approach, which on the 88, we didn't have the LNAV option. We did have VNAV, but LNAV was not an option. So we were never able to go down to lower minimums. And uh, in San Francisco, if anybody wants to look it up, we did the RNAV RNP Yankee to 28 right, and there's a little bit in the uh, in the course between Doing, I think that's Doing, Dong, uh, they say Dong. Oops, uh, Joseph and Fabulous were bending around a peninsula, so it's really nice to allow the VNAV to take the VNAV and LNAV take care of that. Uh, that was my first experience with that. 
uh, procedure, and it was it was fun. Now, when I we, we didn't actually land out of that, we went ahead and did the missed approach, and this is where one of my new favorite things. Most people will be like, "Oh my god, you, you really like this part of the aircraft," and that is the seven thirty seven. Unless you are doing an auto land, does not have a automatic go around. Can't believe that it's not an automatic go around. It's a hand flown go around every single time, unless you set up for an auto land. Uh, so everybody knows me in this world, in, in the APG community. You know I love to fly airplanes, and that was, uh, you know, at first it's like, wow, wait a minute, this is this is kind of stepping way back in the, the Jurassic days. But uh, you know, I actually have come to really enjoy that that portion because I get to fly the airplane. Uh, so we did our, our go-arounds, our misapproaches, and rejected landing. Well, what's a go-around misapproach, rejected landing? Well, there is a difference. A misapproach is, well, if you come down to minimums and you go missed, uh, that's a t- technically a misapproach. So you come down 200 feet, there's no runway, you go around. You you, you, you misapproach. A go-around can be at any altitude. So let's say you're coming on an approach and, you know, you're at, uh, you know, 1500 feet and they say acme blah 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 go around so it's not a full miss approach it's a go around so you go to your miss approach point and then you and you can climb but you don't make any turns to that point and then a rejected landing is when you're just about to land about to touch down and there's a vehicle that pulls out in the runway or an airplane and you hit the go around and your low energy state so those are the three different types of go arounds that they train us on um, and so the, uh, conclusion of the day, uh, we did a couple of things. Uh, we had a, a radio altimeter failure as well. And that's, uh, an important thing on the, uh, 737 because the radio altimeter talks a lot of the systems on the aircraft and it's actually a pretty big deal. So it was very interesting to see that as well. And then the last, uh, event on my first day was, uh, all the way up there, we went up to uh, up to altitude, did an engine failure, drift down to see what that was like. Um, this, again, most of this is demonstration on the first day. And then we had a cabin altitude warning associated with that. And next thing you know, next thing you know, we're, you know, we're diving the aircraft down to get below 10,000 feet. And, uh, <laughs> of course, now we're over the ocean. And what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to stop the simulator at that point once we get below 10, down 10,000 feet. And then they talk about what it's like to ditch the airplane. And the instructor said, well, you're all done for the day. I said, okay, cool. He said, do you want to see anything else? I said, yeah. Well, we're, you know, we're 10,000 feet over the Pacific Ocean, and I want to see what it's like to ditch an airplane. He said, well, you want to know? We have the time, so let's go ahead and do it. So we went ahead and did it. And, you know, of course, simulator is not going to do it realistically, but it was actually a very good learning experience, uh, kind of on the lines of what happened up there at the Hudson. Um, flew the airplane, got nice and low, got the, you know, the uh, 50, 40, 30, 20, and I started flaring the aircraft, get that nose really high, and of course got the aircraft configured, got the nose really high up in the air, and just tail tail flopped it into the, into the water. Of course, the simulator recognized that as being a, you know the end of the end of the day in a crash, but uh, that wasn't part of the training other than for demonstration purposes. Only kind of fun. So that was kind of day number one. Day number two is my first day that uh, I got to go ahead and get into the simulator and fly it with motion on. So, but I, you know, I'm telling you what, it's already 10 minutes already. So, 
you know what? I'm going to have to leave that for the next time that we go ahead and get back together again. So in the meantime, I'm going to send back to the Jeff in the studio. Have a great day, guys. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot, Dana, for the audio regarding your training. Very interesting. And look forward to hearing more from you. All right. Let's move on to some more audio feedback. This one is from Chris Bo Peloto. Hello, APG crew. It's your friend Chris Bo Peloto back with another round of audio feedback. This time for APG 440, where you guys discuss the King Air accident, where it looks like the one engine failed and the airplane rolled over after takeoff. Uh, first off, a little bit of correction, just to keep you further above that 50% mark. Captain Nick briefly mentioned something about a twin piston aircraft, and I should mention that the King Air is actually a twin engine turboprop. So, minor discrepancy there, but you know, got to be perfect, right? Or at least close to it as you can. And Captain Jeff mentioned that it seems like we've seen this before, or seen this rather regularly. I forget how he said it, but you are not the first person to notice that. There was a podcast in the uh, podcast Tales from the Flight Deck, which I highly recommend for the rest of you who have more than three hours a week to listen to podcasts, very good podcasts, where they discuss this issue of King Air's rolling over after takeoff when they have an engine failure. And what they found is that the King Air has automatic feathering props for if an engine fails, the props will automatically go into feather. However, if you mess with the thrust levers at all, it disables that feature. So what they think happens is the engine starts to roll back on takeoff and the pilot quickly reaches to the thrust lever and starts playing with it, which disables the auto feather. So when the engine fails, the prop does not go into feather, causing a lot more drag and the subsequent rollover and crash. So I just thought you guys might find that interesting. Thought I'd share that with you all. And I'll sign out with blue skies and tailwinds for Captain Rick and... Blue skies and perfect skydiving weather for Dr. Steph. A happy retirement for Captain Nick and for Captains Jeff and Dana. A good and successful training time. Thank you very much. Interesting um, tidbit regarding the auto feathering function of the King Air. I had no idea there was. Yeah, I did like not that. know that. So, that makes sense. Nope. And uh, pistons, propellers, yeah. What can I say? All these P words. Yeah. It gets confusing. Yeah. I must not have been paying attention to what you said. No, I mean, we normally don't listen to what I he's did. saying. Well, I wasn't there when <laughs> you said it, I say either. <laughs> hey, I just generally tuned Nick out. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Was Nick talking? Is it my turn to speak now? Yeah. yeah. We're well, just kidding. <laughs> he's very sensitive. Be careful. <laughs> HR. Okay. Mm. Anything else to uh, add? No, good that? information. That, that's. Uh-huh. Um, Interesting to know. Uh, if ever I get anywhere near one, I will be able to go, oh, where's the pistons? <laughs> well, under under the panel. The pistons are <laughs> under the panel. Behind the prop. Pilot. Yes. <laughs> oh, we could keep going <laughs> on. The exterior we? of the prop. <laughs> uh, item three. Uh, this is from Brett, and he sent a link to... A YouTube video, a uh, vast aviation uh, video using uh, live ATC audio at liveatc.net 
regarding, uh, let's, what does he say? I would expect this could be a worst fear for a flight crew trying to get the plane on the ground as soon as possible, getting cabin crew medical support into the cockpit in a hurry and doing it all safety. And he said, this is one of the situations where a single pilot operation would be deadly. Yes, you're right. And this was an incident involving a Delta Airlines flight from, uh, I'm trying to remember where they were going from. Um, Frankfurt hmm. to Chicago. Thank you. Frankfurt to Chicago. Oh, right there in the first line of the description. That's fine. <laughs> Very clever. I'm here you to are. read for you. Yeah. Jeff. Frankfurt to Chicago flight was en route north of Moncton, Moncton. Uh, when one of the pilots declared an emergency, reporting a crew member had just suffered a heart attack and they requested to divert immediately to the nearest airport. And uh, so there's a really well done video, as they all are. And I'm not going to play any of it. Uh, you can do that yourselves. It'll be the link will be in the show notes. But what I did want to mention, and I, and I did listen to this pr pretty quickly after this all happened, and then I went back and um, listen to it again. And I noticed that, uh, the top comment, the top pinned comment on this video on YouTube, uh, is by a gentleman named Matt Clark. And he says, thank you, uh, in, in all caps, for those of you who have been sending your thoughts and well wishes, please know that it's greatly appreciated. I was the first officer on flight 3343 who suffered a sudden cardiac arrest. As most of you already uh, pointed out through your comments, my fellow crew members did a phenomenal job in taking care of me and getting the plane on the ground as quickly and safely as possible. Additionally, the airline, air traffic controllers, airport staff, EMTs, and various hospital and medical staff also did an outstanding job throughout the event and subsequent medical treatment process. Because of all their efforts, I'm alive and well today. Needless to say, I am incredibly fortunate to have survived this event and have essentially made a full, full recovery. All of this is due to the heroic efforts of the other pilots and so many other great people along the way. While I am currently no longer able to hold a, a valid FAA medical certificate, I am working with a variety of medical experts in addition to undergoing various testing and treatments to try and pinpoint the underlying medical issue and treat it. Of course, it remains to be seen whether or not I will, uh, we will be successful in that endeavor, along with being medically cleared to fly again. However, I am otherwise completely healthy and able to go about my life without any restrictions or limitations aside, aside from flying planes. I now belong to a community of people in this world who live with an implanted defibrillator and pacemaker, which ensures that if another cardiac event or issue does occur, I will have um, every chance of surviving. Overall, I simply cannot give enough praise to the captain and the other first officer whom I credit with saving my life. Additionally, I'm grateful for all of the doctors of the Moncton and St. John hospitals, along with Delta Airlines and many other people who really went above and beyond in helping and supporting me and my family. Also, thanks to the group at Vass Aviation for putting together the video and to the individual who recorded the ATC audio. Lastly, thanks to all of you for your kind words and well wishes. That, isn't that awesome that the guy that was That's actually great. involved in yeah. this you know, uh, took the time to, to you know send in this comment and, and thanks. Uh, oh, and it's so, nice to get the yeah, feedback, brilliant. too, that he's doing well at this mm -hmm. point. You know, so you should you should listen to the uh, to the uh, video. It's it's very compelling. Uh, let's just put it that way. So, 
I'm curious, Steph, in your uh, studies mm. uh, concerning defibrillators, and I know you're not, it's not your area of expertise, but if you've got one fitted inside yourself, and a defibrillator and pacemaker, and you're having an episode and someone slaps an external one on you at the same time, is there any likelihood that you're going to fry the internal one or get a double shock or something? To be honest, I don't know the answer to that specific question, but having just done my basic life support research yesterday, if someone does have oh. an implanted defibrillator or pacemaker and you can see it there, um, you just don't want to put the pad over that. Oh, okay. Fair enough. All right. But you're still... I'm presuming you can see the scars. Usually, yeah. Okay. You hope. I mean, you should be looking at, you know, bare chest, so you should be able to see what's going on. Yeah. And there's also a big sticker that they put right there, too. You should well, probably tattoo. see. A yeah. great tattoo, yeah. <laughs> tattoo, yeah. Okay. Excellent. Well, uh, thank you again, Brett, for uh, referring us to that uh, VAS Aviation video. All right. George writes in. George Nolly of the Cleared for, Ready for Takeoff, not Cleared for Takeoff, Ready for Takeoff podcast. Uh, regarding, or you remember, we, he sent in some feedback before, and he talked about the fact that he was a 737 second officer, and we all tried to figure out exactly what he was trying to tell us there. And so I wrote back to him, or actually we said it in the podcast. Hey, George, if you're listening to this, why don't you uh, send us some feedback and explain what the heck you're talking about? So he says, regarding Boeing 737 second officer, back in the 70s, the rule was that a flight engineer was required for any airplane with a gross weight of over 80,000 pounds. And uh, and it gives us a link to a uh, basically the FARs, 91-529. But Boeing designed the Boeing 737 as a two-pilot aircraft. Some air- airlines flew it two-pilot. Others, like United, flew it as three-pilot. The third pilot was called the second officer, and that's what I was for three months as I was about to be furloughed. It was totally a case of feather bedding since there were no meaningful duties for the second officer. As I recall, I did the external inspection and read the checklist, and I could be kicked out of my seat when the FAA came on board. So it tells you right there that it's not really a required <laughs> position in the airplane. Regarding, um, oh, and I was going to say something to the effect that uh, it sounds like you were even more worthless than the first officer in a 727. Oh, I did that for seven years. I can say that. (laughs) I can say that. I I mean, sorry for you. No, it was the best job other than first officer of the L-1011. 10 years of my career uh, flying in the airlines were just amazingly easy and wonderful. <laughs> it was like being retired basically and just flying to the next party. Fantastic. So, yeah. Don't feel sorry for me at all. <laughs> uh, let's see. George continues uh, regarding minimum control airspeed. Miami Rick explained the thrust asymmetry compensator attack perfectly. In addition on the Boeing 787, there's a system called TAMS thrust asymmetry management system during single engine operation. When the air airplane slows down toward minimum control speed, the operating engine power is reduced automatically. The thrust lever throttle to you old timers does not move. But when you look at the engine indications, it looks like you retarded the thrust lever. Stay safe. Again, that was George Nolly ready for takeoff podcast and uh, interesting stuff. Yeah. Mm. Thanks for uh, sorting that all out for us. 
George. We appreciate it. And uh, again, if you have more than three hours a week to spend listening to aviation podcasts, a lot of great ones out there. Uh, George is, is one of one of them for sure. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right. Steph, have you yet been on uh, George's no, show? No, he did invite me a long time ago, and then I was, don't know what I was doing. I was busy. We never right, had a time to, together. George, you need And to, then he stopped asking me. You need to get Steph on. Well, he probably just thinks you're giving him the cold shoulder. I'm not. Okay. I'm just but bad both. at organizing my time. <laughs> well, you have no you have no spare time. I, I can vouch for that. It's Sometimes amazing that we have her every week on the show. It's pretty amazing. Sometimes it's a struggle. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, but Nick has been a subject of uh, George's wonderful podcast, as have I. So, anyway, check it out. Moving on, Jim. Jim Howard. We also know him as just a navigator. He says, hello, Jeff and Cockpit Crew. This is a little late, but I enjoyed Nick's plain tale about his time in the RAF so much that I made an audio feedback with my reaction to it. Keep up the great work. So without further ado, let's hear from Jim. Hello, this is Jim, just a navigator in Texas. This is feedback from episode 441 concerning Captain Nick's recollections about his time in the RAF. This plane tale really hit home because there was a lot of overlap between what he was doing at the time and what I was doing at the time. So let me just jump right in and give kind of my thoughts on the high points in his uh, plane tale. He talked about being a junior pilot in the squadron. In the U.S. Air Force, that means you're going to be the snack snack officer. And it does take time to, to build yourself up to being a fully respected member of the squadron. And lieutenants, it really helps if you talk less and listen a lot. Trust me on this one, because I didn't always do that. (laughs) He talked a lot in this and other tales about the time he was a quick reaction alert pilot in the F-4, and I I guess later in other airplanes. He has a 10 intercept patch, he mentioned. I have a zero intercept patch, because I spent one day as a conehead. Excuse me, a conehead is a pejorative term I would never use for an intercept pilot. An intercept (laughs) Uh, Ewo in my case. I was stationed at Clark Air Base back before God smote that. The Bears started flying out of Vietnam and cruising down the coast of the Philippines to obviously taking a look at Subic, uh, the Naval Base and uh, Clark Air Base and the General Yousef and Philippine Air Force stuff that was going on. Fair enough. Good for them. We decided, somebody decided that we would start intercepting them. Clark had a real alert barn, which is a two-story structure, a hangar for two F-4s on the bottom floor, and a, like a, a little uh, cabin and uh, office and living quarters at the top. And so what we would do is we would uh, go stay in this barn for usually, I think it was 12 hours the time I did it. So I'm up there, still wearing my G-suit. All our stuff is hanging on the airplane. It's pre-flighted. There's a crew chief to help us start. And the barn controller, which is a poor sap, another crew member had to sit in there to answer the phone who didn't actually get to fly. So anyway, the phone rings, he picks it up, he turns around and he points at the bottom and waves his hand so we know it's time to go. So this is the best part of being an intercept crew member in the Air Force. You go down a fireman's pole. (laughs) So I go down the fireman's pole, which I can now for the rest of my life say, I've gone down a fireman's pole in the course of my job. Have you? To make a long story short, we get down in there. 
Unlike normal practice in the uh, Air Force, the uh, backseater makes all the radio calls, at least until the airplane gets out of the hangar. So I remember breathing pretty hard while I called the uh, ground control and told them we were starting up. So we started up, and then they told us, never mind, it was an exercise. About a week later, after a couple of failed intercepts, the F-15s from my old squadron in Okinawa came down, and that night they were passing out pictures of bears. So I never flew an intercept, but I went down a fireman's pole. So that was pretty cool. <laughs> Nick mentioned fighting F-5s. Later in my career, I actually fought them a lot, but the, my first introduction was in about a third of the way through F-4 replacement training unit at McDill. F-5s came in to our squadron, mainly to train the instructors, obviously, but they had to put somebody in the back seat, so they put Lieutenant Howard in the back one. Lieutenant Howard had no clue. (laughs) I remember flying out over the water with the F-5. I remember something about fights on. Then I remember my head alternately (laughs) slamming into the radar scope or bouncing off the canopy. I remember my oxygen mask being pulled off my face by the (laughs) G-forces. I remember flashes of airplanes. I remember uh, a little bit of queasiness. Thank goodness this is at high altitude where the air conditioner worked. So I didn't get real sick, but I got a little queasy. But basically, I just got bruised and confused and (laughs) befuddled back there. So Second Lieutenant Howard didn't learn much uh, BFM on that flight. But later on, mostly in operational squadrons, I picked up at least the very rudiments of uh, fighter-to-fighter combat. We mentioned singing in the squadron. One of the squadrons at Upper Hayford, uh, this was during the Cold War, and a lot of, uh, we had peace protesters living outside the base, and we had just done Eldorado Canyon. So some of the local natives were not completely gruntled with our presence. One of those bomber squadrons, not my squadron, decided at the open day to set up a little booth and raise some snack bar money by selling copies of their squadron songbook. One of the songs was Nuclear War and We're Ready to Go. Trust me, that was not a good thing to be selling to the British public during the Cold War. <laughs> Nick uh, mentioned a time he was scooting around on the back of Vulcans in his, uh, in his F-4. Uh, that reminded me of, I talked to an RAF pilot at uh, Oshkosh, when we, you know, the last one where people could show up. And I don't remember the guy's name exactly or when he was in the RAF, but he told me he was flying along and he looked down in England and saw a four ship of F-111s cruising along at low level. And he said he shot them down with his look-down, shoot-down missile. Well, I don't know. I'm sure that was a sky flash, and I don't, I don't know what they could do. So, okay, we'll give him four kills for that. And then he says, and then I rolled in behind him and chased them down to get AIM-9 shots. And I'm like, wait, what? Because, you know, I've flown them both, F-111 and F-4. You chase down an F-111 at low level in an F-4. Yes, yes, I did. I caught up with him and gave him all my uh, my sidewinders. And I, I was my after my jaw dropped and I thought about how that would actually work in any F-4 I'd ever flown, I said, how much gas did you have left after you'd done that? Oh, uh, I flamed out on the taxiway. Because <laughs> that's what would happen if you were foolish enough to try to run down an F-111 at low level in an F-4 or any other airplane that has that roughly fuel fraction. 
I did get to fire an AIM-9, or excuse me, I get to attempt to fire an AIM-7, and my pilot got to fire an AIM-9 drone, similar to what Nick's was. It wasn't a supersonic drone, but it came down just like in that uh, AI uh, dogfight that got all the publicity a few weeks ago. It came straight at us. I locked it up with the radar, the way the F-4 APR-120 radar, which was much more primitive than the one Nick had. You have a steering dot in the middle of the radar screen, and there would be a circle around it. And when you locked on, the circle would represent the envelope of the AIM-7, and it would get bigger and bigger and bigger. And when it started to shrink, you would tell the pilot to shoot the missile. So just like Nick's backseater, I'm all tense. You know, my shoulders are, you know, wired. I see the circles getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and it starts to shrink a little bit. And I say, shoot, and I hear a clunk, and nothing happens. The way the AIM-7 works, it's recessed in the belly of the F-4, and it falls out about a foot or so, and a lanyard pulls a pin out that fires the rocket motor. Well, in this case, the lanyard broke. The oh. pin never pulled. The rocket just fell into the South China Sea off of the Philippines. <laughs> However, we did have a little fun. This is all pilot stuff, as Maverick would say, or Goose would say. As soon as we didn't shoot the Drone started a 360-degree hard turn, and uh, my pilot, the, uh, a really good pilot named Greg Rice, did some of that m- magic uh, pilot BFM stuff and got behind him and hit him with, shot him with an AIM-9. AIM uh, as Nick mentioned, we didn't put warheads in those, but they had telemetry, and it was judged a hit. So, you know, that was good. That was fun. Uh, one more thing he mentioned was Benbecula. Benbecula is on the west coast of Scotland. It's a large, long-range, early-warning radar station and a great friend of the EF-111 Raven community. Benbecula is a a long, thin island off the coast of Scotland. Not much there, really, besides this radar station and some villages. That part of the country, the world, is incredibly beautiful. If you can ever get an airplane of any size and fly up and down the west coast of, of Scotland, you won't regret it. Now, if you can come up there to Benbecula from Lukers, give the proper salute to the F-4s if they come to bother you like they sometimes do. Scoot across Loch Ness, pop up to what we would call a close-in jam orbit, about three to 5,000 AGL, where you can see the site, you know, and give them a good dose of electrons. They really love that. They fill training squares and something happens, because I don't think much happens on the island of Benbecula day to day. And then you... Uh, then when you're about ready to go home, the controller will ask you for a bubble check. And what he means is he's concerned about the state of his radome, make sure there's no uh, no holes or tears or anything in it. So he asked us to check it out. I mean, that's, the weather is really, really rough at times up there in the western part of Scotland. So we're happy to oblige. So we'd swig the wings all the way back or most of the way back, light men burner, lower our nose a little bit, and give that bubble, that radome, a really close inspection. And uh, they liked it, and we liked it, and everybody had a good time. And I went back, landed, and I would think, they gave us 32,000 pounds of free gas, let us fly across Scotland, up Loch Ness. I I bet they don't let you do that anymore. I stayed in some bed and breakfasts there, and the landlords hated it when people did that. But uh, Fly up Loch Ness, pop up, do a little low-level around the western Scotland, one of the most beautiful places in the world. Pop up, jam Bimbecula, bubble-check them. Come back a little bit low level, a little bit more pop up, go back and land. And they actually paid us to do that. So that was freaking amazing. <laughs> anyway, that was a great uh, plane tale, Captain Nick. And uh, I thank you for giving it to me. It brought back a lot of super fond memories. This is Jim, just a humble navigator in Texas.
Oh, just a humble navigator now. <laughs> Always great to hear from you, Jim. And yeah, you have some great stories. And I, I chuckled at, at every one of those. Absolutely. Yeah. And some of them brought back memories for me as well. I'm trying to chase down a four ship of F-111s and nearly running myself out of gas. They're uh, fast. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, they were Find only as I they, down. They were toying with me most of the time because I had three tanks on and I couldn't really get much over six hundred knots. And every time I got close, they'd just tap the burners and just step away several miles, and then <laughs> they'd take the reheats out, and I'd struggle along try and catch them up again. <laughs> you, you could get them over land only because they were terrified of going supersonic over land. Yeah, but over water. Let them rip. Over water, yeah, yeah. That's um, right. And I, I too, have uh, done a, a few fly-pass of the various sites we have around the United Kingdom, the old radar sites, uh, Ben Peculia, and um, Saxe Vord was another one where you can get at them by coming up a, 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 a valley uh, because they're up on a cliff, and you can get right underneath them and then come over the top of them inverted, and it was always great fun, but... Um, you had to be really careful of the seagulls because there were an awful lot of birds right there. <laughs> yeah, that would not be a good ending. No, that ending. would not be. No, was, I, I really chuckled about the um, his ride in the F5. <laughs> yes. <his> <laughs> yeah. I vaguely remember yeah. something about fights on or something. <laughs> Mass coming off. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Uh, yeah, basically, F5 is a fighter version of the uh, T-38 trainer that uh, – I had some experience. A real dinky toy. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a pretty cool airplane. All right. Uh, again, thank you, Jim, for your audio feedback. Let's keep going here with Vic. He says, um, okay, to add an analogy to Rick's explanation in episode 441 on why fuselage damage can be so problematic on aggressive landings, if you're ever if you've ever bent an empty paper towel tube. Let me try that again. If you've ever bent an empty paper towel, <laughs> I'm not going to be able to do this. If you've ever bent an empty paper towel tube, you'll notice when you bend it back, it's just never the same. Thank you for being so darn funny and informative. I started flying in 1980 and have 10 hours in Cessna 172 and 150. Uh, once a pilot, always a pilot. Hey, don't laugh. I bet there's lots of guys like me that never give up on the dream, even if it never goes beyond the dream. Your fan, Vic Kraft. Yes, I think Vic is absolutely right. Uh, you know, we all we all have a dream, right? Yeah, oh, definitely. Absolutely. Don't give up on your dreams. Yeah, don't give up. Don't give up. And that's a great analogy uh, regarding the the integrity of a fuselage. You know, that paper towel. Like trying to bend a wire head yeah. or something. But mm. if you yeah. wrap the paper towel in speed tape, then it's fine. <laughs> so speed tape fixes all? Yeah. Speed tape fixes everything. Yeah, that's it. That's why, <laughs> that's why you see so many airplanes flying around covered in speed tape. Looks and, like you've made an entire airplane out of speed tape. <laughs> there what wasn't paper mache covered in speed tape. Wasn't it the um I was thinking of that um Bush uh pilot that uh, crashed his his um bush airplane um oh yeah that's in, right. he, he uh, in alaska it. and he he is that the bloke that left uh his fish inside and the bear ate half, half yeah, his airplane the bear, yeah, yeah 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 the yeah. bear broke it yeah 
Bay ripped the airplane apart. <laughs> you taped that thing up. <laughs> <laughs> great story. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a great memory. Well, anyway, thank you, Vic, for the feedback. Mm, and a uh, quick one from Ben Ippolito. Um, he said, uh, highway landings are not just the domain of European air forces. Australia's Royal flying doctor service, the RFDS has several highway strips to call on in case of a medevac. Here's one such example. He gives us a link to the flying doctor.org.au and, uh, it had, um, some, I believe this was the video of, um, the, uh, Royal uh, flying doctor service landing, um, the airplane in a remote location. He said, and there are many more, uh, spectacular vi- videos of the more austere places they go on, uh, various stations or ranch for Americans. Oh, they call their ranches stations. Interesting. Sheep stations. Yeah. Oh, okay. Potato, potato. Sheep stations. What did you say, Steph? Potato, potato. Potato, potato. Tomato, tomato. Let's call the whole thing off. Various divisions operate different aircraft from the PC-12 in the above video to the B-200 and B-250 King Air to the new PC-24 jet uh, made by Pilatus. Uh, Yes, they take them all off-road onto gravel and dirt strips. The jet has been deployed to the Western and Central Divisions to help with the vast distances in, uh, let's see, Western, what's the WI stand for? Western Australia, Western Western Australia. Australia, and Northern Territories. Okay, he actually writes it out afterwards. Oh, he did. Darn it. If I just read a little <laughs> bit further, I would have I noticed I typed that. it out. Oh, see a theme here. Liz is the one that typed it out for, for us. Oh, thank you, Liz. Well, um, uh, next time. You must tell him next time. <laughs> <laughs> or, or just like yell it in my ear when I'm reading. Um, where the extra speed of the jet could result in, in, uh, saving a life. RFDS also does its fair share of night landings at station air, airstrips lit only by flaming dunny rolls, which are toilet paper rolls. And then he gives us a link to the RFDS using flaming toilet rolls to light up remote airstrip. I've seen some flaming toilet rolls that have nothing to do with aviation. Um, good photo at the bottom of the article. Uh, so again, we'll, we'll have these uh, links for you to uh, click on in our show notes. And he said, I've seen a video taken by a flight flight nurse in the right hand seat on takeoff. Eek. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm just wondering what that what video is for. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> You'll have to elaborate interesting, a little Interesting bit more takeoff, then. I suppose. <laughs> interesting technique. Yes, interesting technique. All right. Do we have to talk about anything else, uh, Liz, before? Ah, let's go ahead and we're awfully darn close to that point of the show where we normally play the installment of the old pilot's plane tales. And uh, that's what we're going to do right now. So take it away, old pilot. The old pilot's plane tales. The Wonderful Life of Brian As Boeing comes out from under the dark cloud that has hung over them since the loss of two Boeing 737 Maxes, I'm looking back more than 53 years to the first flight of a 737 and the man at the controls that day. His name may be unknown to many of us, but I'm sure by now that you know of my interest in such people. 
The ones that are not quite household names, but definitely deserve to be. Any of Brian Weigel's achievements would be enough for most of us to dine out on for the rest of our lives. A World War II pilot who was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross, given for acts of valour, courage or devotion to duty whilst flying in active operations against the enemy. A man who flew hump missions in a venerable C-47 and who saw three of his comrades go down in a single day. A pilot who volunteered to fly bombing missions for the fledgling Israeli Air Force, who taught Howard Hughes to fly jet aircraft, whom who became a notable test pilot and yet was one of the most unassuming people you'd ever want to meet. His life started in Seattle back in 1924. His mother was English and his father Canadian, but the Great Depression was looming, and in response, when he was still a toddler, his family moved to settle on his grandfather's farm near Crossfield, not far from Calgary. Eventually, the whole family would be re-naturalized as Canadian citizens. When he was 10 years old, Brian had his first momentous experience with an aircraft. A flying doctor was having engine trouble, and he made a precautionary landing at the ranch. I'd never seen an aeroplane close up, Brian recalled. We were all fascinated. The pilot himself was a heroic figure with his flying helmet and goggles. That started my older brother and me on an aviation career. Their interest was fed by a wonderful aviation magazine called Bill Barnes Air Trails. It was perfect flying fodder for the two youngsters, keen to find out all they could about this exciting world that existed up in the skies. With tempting articles like... Aviation is growing fast. Get into it now. Aviation is a young industry for young, ambitious men. Aviation is a profession in which a young man like yourself can make good money quickly, with opportunities ahead for bigger and better jobs. Aviation jobs pay $40, $60, $75 a week and up to many. Aviation is no cheapskate game. It can't be. It's absolutely necessary to have high types, well-trained men, for only in that way can the airlines build and maintain the remarkable record for speed, economy, and more important, safety that they have today. A little young to get straight into a career, they read with fascination stories which told of Hideous treachery fed embers of hate that smouldered still within ancient evil ruins. Treachery that threatened to blast Bill Barnes from the sky. They eagerly read The Blood Red Road to Petra and other great Bill Barnes novels of air adventure. They learned about careers in aeronautical engineering, the latest aircraft to grace the skies, such as the Supermarine Spitfire One, latest British fighter with a Rolls-Royce steam-cooled engine, which was called the world's fastest military plane. Details are guarded. 
They penciled in the aeronautical crossword puzzles, pondering over clues like air slang for fog and initials for what good planes get from the government. The best bit for the budding aviators, though, was the model workshop, with its exciting plans for such models as the Brown B-3 custom-built sports plane, powered by six strands of one-eighth-inch brown rubber. They could read about the results of the national meet at Detroit, where six British model builders took the Wakefield Trophy, the grand old mug of model building, back to Britain. The brothers ordered model aircraft from the ads in the magazine, and took some of their better efforts to a meet at Calgary in 1939. We entered gas-powered models and a couple of rubber-powered models, but that day there was an air show, Brian said in an interview. A flight of three hurricanes came over, and they did a low-level flyover, and those beautiful Merlins made that beautiful Merlin sound, and that captivated me. I didn't know there was a war coming on, but from then on, my objective was that I was going to be an Air Force pilot. In 1942, Brian turned 18, and he joined the Royal Canadian Air Force. He was delighted to be chosen to train as a pilot, but Hugh, his older brother, was a little less content after being selected to train as an observer. Brian was sent to the RCAF station of Brandon, Manitoba. It was part of the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan, a massive joint military aircrew training program created by the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia and New Zealand. It remains the largest single aviation training program in history, responsible for training nearly half of the pilots, navigators, bomb aimers, air gunners, wireless operators and flight engineers who served in all of the participating countries' air forces during the war. Brian would have trained on a variety of aircraft, such as the Canadian-built Tiger Moth, Boeing Stearman from over the border, and possibly the indigenous-designed and produced Fleet Finch biplane. He would have spent hours being bounced about on the wheezing bellows that supported the crude Link Trainer, nicknamed the Blue Box, a very early flight simulator used to hone the budding pilot's instrument flying skills. Destined to fly multi-engine cargo aircraft, Brian most likely spent hours aloft in the Cessna Crane twin-engine advanced trainer as well. Training complete, Brian was sent overseas to Europe as a combat cargo pilot, flying the workhorse of the armed forces, the Douglas C-47 Dakota. Then, just before D-Day, he was transferred to India flying with the Canadian squadrons in East India near the Burmese border. He carried supplies of food, ammunition, fuel and troops between India, China and Burma for the fight against Japanese forces. Brian Weigel flew the hump, those dangerous and difficult missions over the Himalayas that were no less dangerous than their rough destination airfields. Flying over the hump proved to be an extremely hazardous undertaking. 
The air route wound its way into high mountains and deep gorges between North Burma and West China, where violent turbulence, winds up to 200 miles an hour, severe icing and other dreadful weather conditions were a regular occurrence. Lack of suitable navigation equipment, radio beacons and inadequate numbers continually affected airlift operations. Exhausted crews flew as many as three round trips every day. As a result, the loss rate was appalling, with over 600 aircraft being lost or unaccounted for during these supply missions. When the British ground forces in Burma first turned to the offensive, their efforts took the form of long-range penetration raids into northern Burma by Brigadier Wingate's Chindits. Wingate's men were supplied by airdrops from the Dakotas. The technique was expanded to include the establishment of semi-permanent strongholds, which incorporated air landing strips behind the Japanese lines. Cargo was either airdropped or landed on short, rough airstrips hacked out of the jungle, many of them situated in winding valleys and requiring extremely steep approaches and takeoffs. More than once, the unarmed Canadian aircraft had to rely on ultra-low-level manoeuvres to escape Japanese fighters in the area, and many were shot down. After experiencing the hair-rising flying conditions in the Asian theatre, as the war drew to a close, Brian returned to Europe and then back to Canada. But he returned alone. In 1943... His brother had been shot down and killed in a Mitchell B-25 somewhere over the North Sea. Brian took advantage of the post-war veterans' assistance, attending the mechanical engineering programme at the University of British Columbia. Whilst there, he joined the Royal Canadian Air Force Auxiliary Squadron and flew Harvards, Mustangs and the jet-powered de Havilland Vampire. He said... It was my first jet. It was also my first tricycle landing gear aircraft. It was a remarkable little airplane and a lot of fun to fly. After graduation, Brian applied without success to be an experimental test pilot with Avro de Havilland Canada and Canadair. In 1948, he took time out to return to war when he flew bombing missions for the fledgling Israeli Air Force. The IAF's first military-grade pilots were all foreign volunteers, both Jewish and non-Jewish, mainly World War II veterans who wanted to collaborate with Israel's struggle for independence. Then, thanks to a post-war law enacted in the United States for repatriating Americans who had joined foreign air forces for the war, Brian was given U.S. citizenship. I was a minor when I joined the Canadian Air Force, and although I had no intention of doing anything with Americans' citizenship, the fact was that I was covered by that congressional law by accident. To this day, I have dual citizenship. Brian explained. Unable to find employment in Canada, he wrote to American aviation companies still without success. At his wit's end, he called his father, asking if he had any friends in Seattle who might be able to connect him with Boeing. 
His father told him to visit his brother's godfather, a Mr. Thwing, who worked for the Seattle First National Bank. He drove his rattly old car to Seattle and asked if Mr. Thwing could assist. He said, Well, Brian, I know the chief pilot with that help. Yes, Mr. Thwing, said Brian, laughing. He picked up the phone and called Boeing's Elliot Merrill. He turned to me and asked, Do you have an engineering degree? Yes, Elliot, he has an engineering degree. Do you have jet time? Uh, Yes, Elliot, he has jet time. That was the golden key. But I didn't tell him that I had my jet time in the Vampire, one of the smallest jets on the planet. Brian was interviewed that very day, which heralded the beginning of a 40-year career with Boeing. He moved to Wichita with his new wife and family and immediately joined the B-47 Stratojet bomber program as a production co-pilot. He was quickly promoted to first pilot and then to experimental test pilot. After graduating from the U.S. Air Force Test Pilot School in 1953, Brian returned to Seattle, becoming the lead project pilot for the B-52 Stratofortress bomber. Then he moved to the commercial side of things and did flight testing of the 707 airliner. He was promoted to Assistant Director of Flight Test in 1966, and then on the 9th of April 1967, with Lou Wallach beside him, he flew the maiden test flight of the brand-new Boeing 737. He knew it flew well, but he said, Fifty years ago, we had no idea. We were hoping to eventually sell enough to break even, but the 737 took the aviation world by storm and has been improved steadily since. It obviously filled an incredible need. When asked by a reporter what he thought about the new aeroplane, Boeing's president, Bill Allen, replied, I think that they'll be building this aeroplane when Bill Allen is in an old man's home. He was right, and on the 13th of March 2018, the 10,000th 737 was delivered. That first aircraft was used as a Boeing test aircraft until 1973, and then sold to NASA, where it was put to use as a flying research laboratory. NASA eventually donated the aircraft to the Seattle Museum of Flight, where it was lovingly restored. When not working at Boeing, Brian picked up an unusual hobby. He became a record-setting hydroplane pilot. Seattle didn't have major sports at the time. The population was much lower, he said. People would flock to the water to watch the races. It was pretty bumpy, and you're driving at incredibly fast speeds. My rudder broke off once. I was doing about 160 miles an hour at the time. My boat did a 360 at high speed. In 1969... Brian was sitting in the co-pilot seat for the very first flight of the Boeing 747. During his 28 years as an active test pilot, he also flew the 727, the 757 and the 767, logging time in all of Boeing's contemporary planes. 
He was elected a Fellow of both the Society of Experimental Test Pilots and the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. Later, as Boeing's head of test flight, Brian was an early champion of women in aviation, giving them opportunities to excel in a previously all-male field. Far from the Hollywood stereotype of a macho test pilot, Brian had a quiet gentlemanly presence and gladly offered his time as a mentor to anyone passionate about aviation. He sponsored minority engineering students at the University of Washington. He volunteered to tutor adults seeking their GEDs. He was one of the founders of the Museum of Flight and sat on its boards for many years. And he didn't just work to advance women and minority engineers, He assisted less fortunate people with gifts of tuition or cash. I just felt I should be doing something, and I love to help young people, he said. Just before he retired, Brian took to flying aerobatic biplanes, and after he finally gave up work, he and some partners built and flew a Glacier 2RG. He flew that little plane between Seattle and Sun Valley at 200 miles an hour. He loved flying, and only gave it up when his hearing finally required it at the age of 84. A true aviator, who made countless key contributions to the field of aviation throughout his career at Boeing, during what he called the golden age of commercial jet transportation. A true gentleman, humble, kind, generous, smart and supportive. He personified the old Boeing, said a lifelong friend. Brian Weigel passed away very recently at the age of 96. Another winner and what a man. Absolutely. So sad. He's just left us only a few weeks ago. Uh, So September this year. Uh, And uh, yeah, he had a great career. Um, I I just love listening to all the things he managed to achieve. And yet he did so with amazing grace and humility and generosity. So I think someone whose name we ought to be remembering. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 96 lived a very, very long and very fulfilling life. Yeah. Absolutely. And rich. Yeah. Awesome. I I love hearing stories like his and uh, the good that he did uh, for his family and, and friends and, and everybody in the world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Very good. Well, let's continue with some more feedback. What do you think? Let's do it. Definitely. All right. Um, how about eight from, uh, boom operator, Chris, he says, uh, Hey, APG crew and Liz, been a while. She's part of our crew, by the way, uh, been a while since I've sent him feedback, but I would like to reiterate how much I love the podcast. I still have a severe case of the syndrome due to the fact that I spend most of my day in my truck going from job site to job site. I'm in the residential construction industry on the West coast. If anyone knows of any vaccine, please let me know. The reason, you know what, they had uh, just a little uh, aside, um, 
they were hard at work uh, on the um, go around to selling vaccine, uh, but they uh, had to kind of pause uh, their progress on it because of this whole COVID nineteen mm-hmm. thing. They'll be right back to work. You know, yeah. I, priorities. I totally understand. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, a little that, upset that about it. In the- that and the stomach cramps. <laughs> yeah, well, that's well, that's, that's, that's the bad. unfortunate side effect that they haven't worked through yet with the go around this yeah. Yeah. Yes. Speaking of reiteration, that's for sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, where was I here? Though we were talking about the vaccine. Okay. The reason for my feedback today is to share this YouTube video with Captain Nick. If he hasn't seen it already, that is. Normally, most F-18 videos you see on YouTube are of the U.S. Navy variety. However, this one is an RAAF one. My dad flew Lot 12 Hornets back in the 80s with the U.S. Navy, and I had the opportunity to refuel his old squadron when I first became a boom operator in the Air Force. So the Hornet has a soft place in my heart. Also, my second love after the KC-135 don't tell my wife. I enjoyed the video and thought Captain Nick might as well since, um, let's see, he, since, uh oh. Since it has footage from. Oh, since it has footage from multiple squadrons and he could have flown one of those jets. Thank you, Steph. All for now. Keep the awesome episodes coming. Cavu, uh, Tailwinds, and cold IPAs for all, especially you, Dr. Steph, for having to put up with these hooligans. I just cracked one up. Oh, look at that. Perfect. Chris. Till next time. Way to go. Boom operator Chris. Boom operator. (laughs) (laughs) That was courtesy of Nick. Yeah, because I remember I was an exercise up in Darwin, and um, the uh, United States Air Force and the Marines had uh, flown in, and they had a couple of KC-135s there, and we were in a in a hotel because uh, all the bars are sort of generally attached to hotels in Australia. A lot of them are anyway. And uh, we were, so we're in a bar, basically. And <laughs> um, these uh, KC-135 crews were just giving it large. They were having a ball. And when Sade sang that song, uh, they all started singing Boom Operator to <laughs> the words. It just sounded so funny. We we thought it was absolutely killing, but had some uh, great memories. Um, and uh, I loved the video. It was absolutely brilliant. Yes, I did see uh, some 77 Squadron aircraft, and uh, I almost certainly um, uh, flew the ones that they had in the video. Uh, and but more importantly, I I just got a real kick out of uh, the scenery uh, because it brought back so many memories. Both flying around the Northern Territories, uh, the fantastic scenery uh, down on the uh, east east coast where I did most of my flying, uh, north of Sydney, the beautiful Great Long White Beaches. Uh, it just really was superb. I, I even recognised. Uh, some of the landmarks around Point Stephens and Newcastle and uh, where my old base uh, used to be. So, yeah, it was a fantastic three years I spent there, uh, and uh, it was a lovely uh, chance to relive some of those uh, memories. So, thank you. You're half Australian, right? Uh, I am. I haven't worked out which half. Uh, <laughs> the good half. Um, yeah. Yeah. Do you miss it at all? Better looking half? Yeah, the better looking half. <laughs> <laughs> well, all Australians good looking, of course. That's what I said. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, I, I do. I, I would love to have stayed out there, but I wasn't allowed to. The Air Force wouldn't let me stay because the, the, the time the Australian Air Force were looking for pilots. They, in fact, recruited some uh, XF-18 pilots from America uh, who came over and worked uh, with the Australian Air Force. Um, but uh, the, my Air Force wouldn't release me for another three years, so I had to go back to the UK. And by the time they did release me, uh, there were. It was the middle of the Gulf War, and no one was employing airline pilots. Uh, so um, I basically, you know, stayed in the UK and then got a job in the UK. So uh, that was my first job with Virgin, and that's been what I've been in more or less ever since. So, yeah, it it would have been great. And apart from the fact that in those days when I was out there, you know, I could have. Um, sold my house in the UK and bought a mansion. Mm. Now it's exactly the opposite. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, uh, I'd need to uh, to to, to uh, I'd need to sell a mansion in Australia to buy a hovel in the UK. I mean, the <laughs> prices have gone up considerably since uh, those days, mm. since the nineties. Haven't they everywhere? Huh? Yeah. Great. Well, I'm glad that that provided some great uh, memories. That was for super you. feedback. Thanks yeah. very much indeed, Chris. All right. Let's move on to Ethan. He said, uh, I've been listening to your podcast for about a year now, and I'm really glad I found it. I've always been an aviation lover and a hobbyist at heart. As a kid, I always imagined myself one day a captain for a major airline. As we all know, life is dynamic, and instead I ended up in the healthcare world. I spent the majority of my early career in air medical services, buzzing around the Northeast in helicopters. Fast forward 10 years, and now I'm in healthcare administration, still daydreaming of the cockpit life. Anyway, enough of that. My question to you guys, what happened to the three-engine airliners? What was the cause of their decline? ETOPS changes? Fuel efficiency? Why do they still exist in the cargo world? Looking forward to hearing your feedback. Stay stay safe and healthy. And again, this is from Ethan Kurtzman in Connecticut. So... I don't know. What do you think, Steph? Um, I think that his paragraph uh, of possible answers to why we don't see the three holers anymore. Um, I think he's nailed a couple of the very. Yeah, I think fuel efficiency um, primarily. Yeah. Yeah. Three engines burning and then you have all the maintenance on three engines, you know, that exactly. extra engine and cost. And, yeah. And we have very efficient um, engines now. So you can have two engine airliners and very reliable engines and very ETOPS reliable. has something mm-hmm. to do with that. Yeah. So he so nailed why it, do man. the cargo yeah. guys use them? And yeah. So he also asks, well, why are the uh, cargo people still using these three holders? Because they're cheapskates. They don't want to buy new airplanes. <laughs> well, they're <laughs> actually using the seven four four engines. I think I think we have a couple um, of those freight dogs in our live audience. Maybe they can chime in and give us their their. Uh, idea of why uh, you see so many of these beautiful three-engined wide bodies still out there flying in the in the cargo world that's true yeah uh, the 7.4 of course uh you know with all four engines mm-hmm. uh, it's doing a fantastic job uh, yeah and i think basically a lot of MD-11s um, and things like yeah. that mm-hmm. as opposed to the fickle uh, passengers who you know sometimes just don't pitch up for a flight I think you can always pack a freighter full of stuff because you've got a you know a huge, great big hangar with thousands of boxes waiting to go places. It's not like they're going to get lost in the bar in the airport mm-hmm. and not pitch up for the flight. 
So uh, I think they're a lot more reliable than uh, the average passenger. So you mm. know, and uh, you can uh, you know you can off- offset those costs. I think much easier than you can on a on a passenger outfit. Yeah, that's for sure. All right. Well, no response from our freight dogs in the live audience. They they probably fallen Useless. asleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're useless. Yeah. They're, they're probably all drunk again, like, like freight dogs. No, well, actually, they're probably going to work right yeah, now. Yeah, they probably already oh, left for work. That's true. The sunset. They're, the they're off. They got, Starting they have, to get dark. They got to go to work. <laughs> all right. Uh, Chris writes in. Chris is a, a friend of mine from uh, and fellow podcaster uh, you know, from the old days, uh, my Catholic podcasting roots. And uh, the StarQuest Production Network, he says, Hi, ABG crew. Astonishing Legends is a podcast that deals in-depth with different kinds of legends from UFOs to the Pied Piper. They Wait, the Pied Piper is a legend? I thought that was a real thing. Hmm. Uh, they one just, of my ancestors. <laughs> one of, oh, that's right. That's one of Liz's ancestors. Uh, how's Uncle Pied? Um, yeah, anyway. Hang on a minute. I've been to, <laughs> is it Hamel, uh, the German town? Hummel? And they've got. Oh, yeah. Uh, they've got statues and stuff uh, to oh. the Pied Piper. They say it must have been real. He must have. Uh, they just did a two-part series on the D.B. Cooper affair, and I thought you might be interested. No, he's a legend. Uh, he did, <laughs> yeah. That didn't really happen. Oh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, they tend <laughs> to have a pretty even-handed take on things and look at multiple possibilities in every one of their shows. The series for D.B. Cooper is about two and a half hours long between both parts, and then he gave us... Uh, links to both episodes, part one and part two. So we'll have those in the show notes for you if you guys want to check it out. Again, uh, that's Chris. Um, hope everything is going well with uh, uh, you and Tanya and your child, or maybe you have more by now. I don't know. I haven't been keeping track. Thanks, Chris. All right. Continuing on. Uh, this one's from Mike Cochran. And he said, in reference to the discussion on APG 444, just the last show, on pilot rebacks, I located this in the AIM, the Aeronautical Information Manual. It looks like placing the call sign on either side of the transmission is acceptable here in the United States. Uh, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. You guys just don't use the call sign, let alone putting it on either side. I do. Don't speak don't for everyone. Sign? We use our call signs. What are you talking about? Well, there are people you that must be the only two pilots I've ever heard. Oh, of. Nick, <laughs> old curmudgeon is 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 peeking up through the hole in the ground. Um, <laughs> We've told him a million times not to exaggerate. Yeah, I know. We told you a million times not to exaggerate. Yeah, that's true. Um, okay, uh, from the AIM four dash. 4-7, pilot responsibility upon clearance issuance. It talks about how you should do that. And then uh, highlighted here, example, quote, climbing to flight level 330, United 12, or November 5, Charlie Tango, Roger, cleared to land, runway 9 left. Uh, so I guess here now it's, um, it's acceptable either way. ICAO, on the other hand, the International Civil Aviation Organization. Uh, is that right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yep. States that the call sign should be placed at the end of the readback. Um, 2.8.3.7. An aircraft should terminate the readback by its call sign. So he said, you were correct. And we stayed above the 50 
percent mark. Oh. Nope. <laughs> Still haven't figured out how to get that window active. <laughs> We're gonna have a tutorial on how to use the soundboard. Really knows this which one I'm gonna land on and which one I'm gonna play. <laughs> Wait, there's a fifty percent guarantee. Thank you, thank you, uh, Liz. Um, anyway, um, so I hope that one puts puts this whole thing to bed. And I knew I could count on our wonderful APG community uh, to cite some kind of a document that would state what, what's right and what's wrong or what's acceptable. Hey, everyone. It's Miami Rick here um, answering a, a question regarding um, becoming an, uh, an AMP technician. And uh, Keoff, he um, sent an email uh, a little while ago um, uh, basically, I'll, I'll just read the, the the beginning part of it to establish a little bit of a um, of a precedent here. And it says that uh, he wanted to address uh, JJ from uh, AVL his question about becoming an AMP. And basically, what he's saying is that he recommends um, going to an FA regulated uh, AMT school. And just like Doctor Steph said, you can just you can find just about any document uh, uh, you want online these days, and uh, many of them on the FA. On the own, uh, the own, the FAA's own site, which is nice because you know back when I went through this over twenty years ago, that wasn't the case. And so, yes, I mean the 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 point here is to go to a school that is certified under Part One Forty Seven, just like just like pilot schools are certified under Part uh, either Sixty One or One Twenty or uh, One Forty One. Sorry, uh, AMT schools are certified under Part One Forty Seven, and that's and that's what you want. You want to make sure that you do go to a school that's certified under Part One Forty Seven. Um, and so it's just a matter of it's just a matter of looking. Um. I, when I went through my uh, AMT uh, training, I went uh, uh, to uh, a vocational school, which was, in fact, certified in Part 147 to give that, uh, that uh, type of instruction uh, under uh, FAR uh, Part 147, and that's how I got it. So, yes, Part 147 is important. And just as he says here in his email, uh, it, it takes, you know, about two years uh, you have to go through, uh, as I, I believe I did, I did uh, comment on this. You have to go through general, which is the just the general uh, basic knowledge. Uh, you know, just just basic electricity, if I remember here correctly, basic electricity, uh, uh, basic electrical principles, uh, the basics of flight, um, uh, different parts parts of the aircraft. Uh, very very, you know. Um, just um, skimming over uh, aircraft systems, and uh, so you really don't go into too much depth, really, because you are getting into the you know general knowledge, general uh, maintenance uh, knowledge, and then after that you go through airframe and power plant, and then um, airframe one and, uh, and airframe two, and then power plant one and power plant two. Now this 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 can change, and this can be different depending on what school you go to. But at the end of the day, just like you know when becoming a pilot. Uh, becoming an AMP, um, it's kind of the same. And when it comes to you know um, checking the boxes required under Part One Forty Seven for you to receive your your certificate, and just like any other um, FA certification, uh, both for airframe and power plant, uh, you go through a uh, uh, 
an oral exam, a written exam, and a uh, practical exam. So you 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 do one for airframe, and then for power plant. Um, and then I believe that I should look this up before answering this feedback. I believe that. Um, you are not allowed to sign any work off in the first, uh, I believe, in the first six months after getting your, uh, your uh, AMP certificate. And then after that, you are cleared to uh, sign uh, work off uh, yourself. Um, but I'm going to have to check on that. I should have done that before. But anyway, that's, that's basically it. Um, thank you so, so much for your feedback. And uh, keep them coming. Great questions. Let's jump to 13 from Glaucus. Hi, team. Hope you're all well. I saw an interesting article regarding bird strikes in our local news. It's actually regarding an incident that took place in the U.S. on a plane of the sister airline from Acme, Delta. And then it gives us this link from uh, news.com.au. Does it take a large bird to make such a damage or would the speed be the critical factor in the damage? Uh, thank you for your valuable insight and for everything you do for the whole community. We all miss Dana. And since I don't have a lot of time for the social media, I have no news on how he's going. Hope he's enjoying the 737 despite the tiny cockpit. It is a great machine. Um, by the way, we, uh, uh, I'm sure if you're listening right now, Glaucus or G-Man, uh, you'll, you'll know that, um, we've already played a couple of, uh, installments of Dana's 737 training experience so far. So, and we look forward to hearing more from it. And, uh, the last thing that G-Man says, uh, we've been able to hear what Liz says from the first day she started whispering in Captain Jeff's ear. Lucky she didn't say what she really thought when the crew <laughs> made the eventual joke about Canadians. <laughs> Don't worry. She says what she really thinks. Um, yeah, she does. Trust yeah, me. We just can't hear her anymore. Yeah. And I, I, I select certain things that she says from time to time and uh, put them in the audio podcast. So you all can, uh, can hear her. Um, so. Uh, does it take a large bird to make such a damage, or would the speed be the critical factor? I think it has to do with a combination of those two things, right? Uh, the the mass sure. and the speed. But I think that we could all agree that the speed has the most effect. Yep. So I think you could have a very large bird at lowish speeds to cause a bit of damage. Or yeah, a very small bird at high speeds to cause a lot of damage. I'm thinking of that equation that I think I mm -hmm. learned in physics, mv squared, uh, mass times velocity squared. So the the v component is an exponential one. So, uh, but they both have one half mass velocity squared. Yeah, yeah. or one half. Your thank you, very. The, yeah, and one half is, that's fifty percent. Ding, ding, hey. <laughs> which is the uh, the equation for kinetic energy, which yes. is what a bird has when it clobbers you. So, yes. yeah, uh, the mass not quite so important, but of course, it does play quite a big part. Yeah, it's the impact speed. Um, um, uh, it's, it's why uh, people uh, who are floating around in space looking after spacecraft are terribly worried about. Uh, 
debris that's uh, floating around the world uh, getting in the way because even the tiniest uh, piece of debris out in space, because there are such enormous speeds involved, can do a vast amount of damage. So, yeah. And here's where the differentiation is made between mass and weight because weight is mass times or plus gravity or whatever the equation is. Gravity has something to do with it. But if you're floating around and there's no gravity, uh, mass is still the same for that object. And you combine mass and velocity, you have a problem, Houston. Yeah, very true. But I always thought that weight was what you did in Starbucks while your coffee was made. <laughs> That's true, too. <laughs> okay. But <laughs> bam, rim shot. Enter rim shot Depends here, Depends on how Jeff. heavy your coffee is. <laughs> yes, very true. Yeah. Can I have a mass coffee, please? Liz is pointing us to an answer finally from those from those useless freight dogs, freight dogs in our Jeez. audience. <laughs> they finally woke up from their little sleep, and uh, so iHall Boxes says we got more time and money due to operating margins to spend on maintenance. Our airplanes sit on the ground for most of the day, anyways. Ah, okay, hmm, interesting. Yeah. Also, we don't have to attract customers by operating the latest and greatest equipment. So you can take those leftover airliners, repurpose them. There you go. So Which win, is win. why there are still DC-8s flying cargo. Mm-hmm. I'm going, really? And until recently, well, I guess there still are a couple of places in the world, not so much the major freight carriers like FedEx and UPS, uh, but it wasn't that long ago that they were still flying the uh, venerable 727s around. They finally uh, uh, retired all those things. Anyway. So thank you, uh, Glaucus, and our live audience for helping us answer all those questions. Uh, let's see. Moving on to John. This is Nick's. This is for Nick. Okay. Take it away, Nick, if you want to do number 14. Uh, okay. So uh, this is from John Picard, who um, has a technical question, and he's asking, uh, what is uh, max dry, max wet, max continuous cruise, flight idle, and ground idle? So max dry is when you you uh, come out the shower and stand in one of those hot air machines. Max <laughs> wet is when you're in a power shower. Oh. Uh, max continuous, uh, I haven't quite worked that one out yet. I can't <laughs> think of anything amusing. Flight idle is when you're bored in an airplane that's airborne. Mm. And ground idle is when you're waiting for your coffee in Starbucks. <laughs> um, so seriously, um, he wanted a, the kind of definitions for that. So uh, max dry, um, dry power is mil- it's a military term, uh, dry and wet, and it refers to aircraft with uh, reheated or engines with afterburners. Uh, max dry is full power without selecting the afterburners. So it's just using the engine like a, a normal jet engine that, other aircraft have. Uh, max wet is, well, wet really indicates that you selected the reheat or the afterburners and you've put that on uh, max chat. So you've got the full reheat selected there. Um, max continuous. Uh, now, every engine's got limitations uh, about how much of the maximum power it can put on. And it's usually a temperature and or a, um, an RPM indication that uh, they're not allowed to exceed. And um, the engine will usually go right up to those limits because nowadays we all have FADEX. Uh, FADEX, uh, full authority digital 
engine control. So the FADEC will um, stop the aircraft, the engine from accelerating to destruction. It will hold it at the maximum limits. But when you're cooking an engine at full power, it's not good for the engine. The engine gets bound hot. The blades start to wear and everything is being strained to its utmost. So there's usually a time limit applied to uh, max dry and max wet. So what you need to do is to know how much power you can get out of the engine continuously. So that's what the max continuous limit is. So it allows you to go right up, actually quite usually quite close to the max dry or max wet limit, uh, but stepped back just a small amount so the engine isn't quite as hot and you can leave it at that setting all day, every day. Uh, and that's really not a problem. Um, flight idle. Well, a lot of engines don't want to come back on RPM too much. It could be a response things. So when you're on the approach, you might want to go around and you might want fast engine response out of your jets. So when you're at idle, it, it, the RPM won't come back too much. Um, it could be the fact that you need to keep the air conditioning packs running, so you're not allowed to bring the engines too far back in power, um, or the generators online. There could be various reasons for having a higher idle uh, or minimum uh, speed for the engine. But that doesn't, of course, reply on the ground. Usually on the ground, having a a high idle power from your engine is quite embarrassing because you end up scooting along the run, the taxiways continually on the brakes. So often when you have activated the weight on wheel switches and the uh, aircraft settle on the ground, when you pull the throttles back to idle, they come to a slightly lower idle setting to allow you to taxi around comfortably because uh, those other uh, aspects aren't quite so important. Um, what more can I say? Uh, I did pull out some uh, limitation cards. Uh, so to give you an idea, there are other limits. Um, I'm just looking at the tornado here. Uh, it had a combat limit, uh, which was uh, an extra bit of uh, energy you could get out of the engine, but you're only allowed to use that for five minutes. Uh, max reheat you could use for uh, 20 minutes. Uh, minimum reheat you could use for 30 minutes. Max dry you were limited to 36 minutes. Max thrust reverse for thrust reverse for 40 seconds. <laughs> and um, there are various other uh, limitations there of uh, RPM and um, uh, temperatures. And uh, from recollection, civil aircraft we were allowed to use toga. Uh, the sort of highest setting you can get out of a civil uh, engine for. <laughs> How did you know I was going to say that? <laughs> you could use Tega for five minutes normally, um, but in an emergency, if you a twin engine airplane, lose an engine, you're going to need full power perhaps on that remaining engine for a while. You could double that and use uh, Tega there for 10 minutes. Uh, course, use what? 10 minutes. Of course, uh, in the real world, if you uh, get to your 10 minutes and you still need full power, you're not going to throttle it back if you're going to crash. So, you know, you're just going to break the engine eventually. Yeah. And this is all really to preserve engine life and stop from melting blades and and uh, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, if you do exceed, then they'll end up making bottle openers out of the 
Yes, that's blades. <laughs> but they'll be. I mean, that's a win for someone. Slightly misshapen and melted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, most of it's concerned with engine life because the engine will often uh, accept higher temperatures and higher speeds, but it shortens the life considerably, and everyone gets a bit upset if you do these things for longer. Very good. Well, thank you, John Picard, for sending in the question. I'm glad that Nick took that one because he knows all these answers. Um, Moving on to John from CFI, John from Redmond, Oregon, Uh, writing in response to a couple of things in your last couple of episodes. It's been a couple of years since I last sent him feedback and appreciate the podcast, which so far, wait, it's been a couple of years since he appreciated the podcast. Sounds like it. Yeah. We don't blame you, John. (laughs) There are some people out there that have never appreciated it, John. So (laughs) anyway, uh, which so far has helped me a little. Uh, He's put a comma in there. There's been a couple of years since I last sent him feedback and appreciate the podcast. I know, but I thought it was more fun to do it Uh, my way, which so far has helped. The grammar grammar stickler. (laughs) Which so far has helped. Yeah, it wasn't the way he wrote it. It was the way I said it interpreted it yeah uh, which so far has helped me keep a little distracted while i'm working on getting my flight medical back had a small medical issue late last year and after spending a week in the hospital i'm now jumping through the hoops to get the faa to give me a new medical oh, good luck, john i understand well. yeah, yeah stuff it's, it's stuff has experienced that yeah uh and if all goes well i'll be able to start flying again this february but in episode 442 you were talking about the critical engines and the PA-44 Seminole to help bring you back to the 50% level. Yay, there we go. Thank you. Um, the Seminole does have counter-rotating props. As just Jeff the said same originally. as the Seneca does. Pardon me, Liz? You said that originally, I believe, Jeff. Yeah, I did. You, Thank you, you Liz. Yeah. Liz makes the point that I, I'm the one that said that I thought the Seminole has counter-rotating prompt so yeah i thought we were both in agreement on that and rick was the we'll one keep reading said. here and see who who was in error oh, there. okay because okay. this doesn't happen very often so we might need oh, to make note of this doesn't because hmm. you know he is the get that one ready oracle uh the Seminole does have counter-rotating props just the same as the seneca i guess with all the aircraft and systems captain rick has had to learn he can be forgiven for getting something wrong on uh-uh. occasion no 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 he uh-uh. cannot be forgiven nope, not forgiven yeah, the he Wikipedia failed us <laughs> for at least a couple episodes to come. Yeah, and he's not even yeah. here to. He can't defend himself. Defend himself at all. So uh, we'll we'll have to bring it up again then. Yeah, we will put that one on the. Yeah. Back burner. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you, Liz. I, she says I'm the only one that's perfect here. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, like Mary Poppins. <laughs> Practically perfect in uh, every way. She's talking about the purple haze incident, but uh, I don't know. Jimmy I could be making all this up too. Maybe uh-huh. she didn't say any of that. That's the uh, advantage for you all not being able to hear her. <laughs> in episode 443, you were talking about 141 schools and using the autopilot, the large flight school I work for, which is based in Oregon and instructs mostly international students must be an, an anomaly then because we have no aircraft that haven't uh, autopilot installed though it would be nice to have them on occasion uh, especially when flying imc but even that's hand flown 
It's interesting watching students shooting an approach in IMC for the first time, especially the ones that insist that they won't uh, or they don't get disoriented. Regards and Cavu from John CFI I MEI. Thanks, John, for that. Nice. Appreciate it. And Next one's for Rick. Hey, everyone. It's Miami Rick again. And uh, this time we're answering a question from Justin uh, regarding counter-rotating engines and um, and touching back on um, uh, critical engine theory. And he goes on to say here, um, Dear uh, knowledgeable Dr. Steph and handsome Captain Rick. Oh, why? Thank you for that. He goes on to say that he really enjoyed our explanation about the critical engine with... Um, uh, double prop aircraft or, you know, or, or twin engines, um, twin, twin engine equipped airplanes. But he says that he didn't quite fully understand it. Could you maybe go over it again in more detail? Absolutely. Be happy to. So well, I'm, we're, we're going to go through this and I'm going to make it as simple as possible. The reason why the left engine is critical is because the, if, if you stand behind the airplane, right, you're standing behind a twin prop airplane with the engines running you'll notice that the engines rotate uh, clockwise, right? Keep in mind that the prop blade that bites into the air and provides the thrust is the down-going blade, right? So if you're standing behind the aircraft, you'll notice that the distance from the down-going blade on the left side, the distance from that down-going blade on the left side to the center line of the aircraft is shorter on the left than it is on the right. So all that means is that if you lose if you lose the left engine, which is the critical engine, the arm between the downgoing blade is and the center line of the aircraft is longer on the right than on the left. Now let's talk a little bit about directional control in, on airplanes. Um, the vertical stabilizer in airplanes, the very part, the very um, the aft part of it, or the the the, the 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 aft portion of it is hinged, right, and that's called the rudder. And that is how you control yaw, right? So yaw is the movement of the aircraft about its vertical axis. All that the vertical stabilizer is is a wing, but it's set vertically on top of the aircraft, right? Right, right on, right on the empennage of the aircraft. So by moving the rudder to the left and to the right, all you're really doing is you're you are producing lift. So sideways, sideways lift. That's really all it is. So if you lose an engine. The only way to keep the aircraft straight, going straight down the runway, or, or uh, keeping a straight fly path, is by deflecting the rudder and uh, producing that sideways lift to keep you going straight. Now, the reason why the left, as I said, the left engine is critical is because if you lose that left engine, the amount of rudder required to keep you going straight is greater if you lose the left engine versus the right. Now, since you are producing lift, anytime you produce lift, you also produce drag. And so if you lose that left engine and you introduce that rudder to keep you going straight, so if you lose that left engine, right, the airplane is going to want to yaw to the left because you don't have any power coming on the left side. So what you have to do is you have to introduce right rudder to keep the airplane uh, going straight. Now, as I said, when you produce lift, you produce drag, right? So since the amount of rudder required to keep you going straight is greater, 
if you lose the left engine versus the right, the amount of lift required to keep you going straight, if you lose the left engine versus the right, is greater, but also the amount of drag is greater. So critical engine theory, it's basically all it, all it really means is the amount of lift, uh, you know, lateral lift required to keep you going straight. And so that's basically it. The longer the arm moment between the downgoing blade and the, and the vertical uh, axis of the airplane, the more critical that engine is. And about counter-rotating engines, um, some airplanes do have that, but um, it's it's really it's it's really uh, a question of uh, of uh, one ease of maintenance, and another one is uh, just basic basic fleet commonality. A lot of these a lot of these engines are interchangeable, and so it just if you have a a fleet of aircraft. You, know, you have a bunch of airplanes out there, and um, you were to have a fleet of aircraft with counter-rotating engines, then you would need to have you need to stock engines to um, fit on those airplanes at the right place. So, so basically, counter-rotating the, the the beauty of counter-rotating props is that the you really don't have a critical engine because the left engine rotates clockwise. And then the right engine rotates counterclockwise, meaning that the downgoing blade is at the same distance from the vertical um, uh, axis of the airplane, which basically means that you don't have a critical engine. But if you need to get one of those engines off the airplane for, I don't know, maintenance or overhaul or whatever, you need to be able to put another identical engine on that same spot, right? Versus having just a regular fleet of airplanes with regular engines and being able to swap them from left to right. So it really comes down to a, um, uh, an issue of, of dollars and cents, really, it's all it is. That's why you don't see those uh, a lot. Uh, and then there's one more thing about um, uh, twin, um, uh, twin airplanes. Uh, and then one airplane comes to mind, it's the, uh, I think it's the Cessna 337, where you have a, it's a twin, but it's it's called it's what's called centerline thrust. So you you'll have one prop in the very front of the airplane, like a, your regular 172, and you'll have one prop in the back of the airplane. And uh, really, that doesn't really count for even though it's a twin airplane because you have technically two engines. It really doesn't count for for um, multi-engine training because the whole point of multi-engine training is to uh, learn how to. Uh, use the rudder effectively to uh, counteract that dissimilar thrust if you are presented with an engine failure uh, scenario. So that's basically uh, it with, uh, with twin props. I hope that uh, helped a little bit. And if it didn't, you know, just reach back out and uh, we'll uh, try to explain it again. Uh, skipping to 17. Uh, this is from Mike. Great show, guys and gals. I enjoyed it every week. I was listening to show 380, and the discussion was the removal of a disruptive, abusive, profane passenger. I think the plane was still on the ground, but when this happens in the air, the plane usually diverts to a, an airport en route rather than proceeding to the destination. Given that many airports are not actually in the city they serve, but are often in rural areas, 
These areas tend to have small town police, small town police forces, or sometimes just county sheriffs and deputies. Are there places known for detaining unruly or removed passengers and throwing the book at them? Uh, a few decades ago, I had an uh, airline pilot friend who knew, or I had airline pilot friends who knew of quote preferred airports for disruptors, where the local law enforcement would detain them for hours, not allowing them to call until the next day, and having substantial bail based on multiple charges for both conduct on the plane as well as conduct in custody. This may just be an urban legend, but I'm wondering if it still exists. Cheers. And again, that's from Mike O'Dorney. Um, you know, I am not aware of any list of airports that are preferred for us to divert to if we have an unruly passenger. Knock on wood, I have not ever had that experience where I've had to divert for that. And um, so I can't really attest to that. But I do remember something many, many years ago, back when we used to have actual classrooms, uh, when we go to our recurrent training. And, and, uh, one of the days we usually get together, uh, with, uh, flight attendants and we'd have a class on, um, crew resource management. And I do remember one of the instructors there, he was, uh, also a lawyer. Wow. What's worse than a pilot, a pilot and a lawyer, right? Ba-doom, worse bam. than a pilot oh, and a doctor, a pilot and a doctor, a pilot and a lawyer, pilot, doctor, lawyer, a pilot, doctor, lawyer. <laughs> That's wow. the worst. Anyway, um, but I'm sure we could tell a lot of good jokes though, if you were all three, um, anyway, he, uh, kind of was really making the point back in those days, probably at least 20 years ago, that that is a consideration that we should make that if you divert because of an unruly passenger, there are some places that you go that they don't have the authority. And I don't remember the exact verbiage he used to explain what it, what kind of authority they really have to have to actually remove the passenger from the airplane and and book them on charges or arrest them or whatever and uh, i don't remember what that what the terminology uh was that he was using but um dr dow authority dr dow authority that's uh from liz that's a good one d d a dr dow authority Mm -hmm. okay maybe that's what he said no i don't think dr dow was even a thing back then anyway that was more recent um but I don't know, Nick, did, did you all have like any, well, I mean, I, I know it probably be, would be pretty restrictive for you all to have a, uh, much of a variation of places that you would divert to based on the type of well, flying. We only ever had nice passengers on. Oh, our I see. They never, there was never a concern. Okay. Uh, no, actually, uh, you think about it, uh, the, the bigger airplanes, you can only go into bigger airports, which are going to be well-served. Uh, with law enforcement so it wasn't really a consideration although um, I do remember having a a passenger who refused to stop smoking um, and the cabin crew got very upset with them Uh, and uh, when we were going down to Johannesburg um, when we uh, were on the approach I said well I hope you've all taken statements and things so we're going to prosecute this and the girls were very tired and they said oh we can't be bothered with that it's all too hard (laughs) So I went, oh, okay. Right. But um, I did get on the blower and ask uh, our operations to let the police know because I thought, well, the least we can do is, uh, you know, um, have the police escort this guy off the airplane. Uh, and because um, he really was being an absolute pain in the backside. Mm. Uh, and uh, this, uh, the, he was held on the airplane till the very last. And um, 
when this this enormous um you know skinhead policeman with all this gear this south african guy um mark frog marched this bloke off and uh, his sergeant came up and chatted and saying uh, you know we've got the guy and uh I said, what are you going to do to him? Because we're not going to press charges because the crew haven't uh, made any effort to uh, write uh, witness reports, etc. He said, oh, we're going to toss him in the back of this dog van. They had a canine unit, a little dog van. They threw him in the back there, the kennel where the dog went. Oh, no. Yeah. And uh, they said, oh, we'll just throw him in the, the lockup for the rest of the day. And then uh, when he starts bleating too much, and you know, tonight, sometime we'll let him go. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so even though we did absolutely nothing, they, they locked him oh, in the cells man. all day. Where was this? This was in Johannesburg. Oh, my gosh. I was really impressed. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, hey, take note of that if you're listening to the show and you're flying <laughs> to yeah, Johannesburg. Maybe just yeah, yeah. behave. Yeah. Don't drink. So you know what I do to my passengers when they're not behaving? What? Push them out of the airport. Get out. Yeah. <laughs> She's pretty strict about that, actually. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's funny. All right, Mike. Um, yeah. Sorry. I, I don't know of any list of places like the one that <laughs> Nick just mentioned, which would be a good one. All right. Let's end this with <laughs> yes. a truly bizarre piece of feedback so and, and texas charlie you know he's known for sending us some some kind of a questionable bizarre stuff but this one takes the cake uh so his feedback starts off okay he wrote all that out that's the way he spelled that this is one time i'm truly lost for words i'll just let the video speak for itself and he says i'll apologize now texas charlie and <laughs> so we're going to, we're going to play this video now. I, I didn't, uh, it's only lo- like little snippets. Uh, there's much more to this video. If you can stomach it, um, that you, you'll have the link to in the show notes and, um, we're, and I don't have any, uh, audio to go with it because we can talk over it because we're going to want to say something for sure. So let it rip Liz. Okay. We're seeing, um, uh, a box being opened, a wooden box, looks like uh, some kind of a dead animal, animal, animal coming out of it. And uh, this, this cat is, <laughs> has, has propellers on each of its paws. I don't hear anything. Is that on purpose? No, I, this, I just said, yeah, we don't have audio. Oh, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. So we could talk over it. Yeah. And ah, it flies. And it, it's a flying cat. Uh, 101 uses for a dead cat. Did you not get that book in America? Uh, no, uh, no, I didn't. And oh, this, was this, this would one be 102 them? uses because I don't think they had. <laughs> I don't think they had drones. Cat into a drone. Yeah. So um, if you're if you're listening to the audio only podcast, you have to, you have to click on this link in the show notes and watch this video. And anyway, Texas Charlie sends us a postscript. Postscript. Why am I not surprised that this involves that wonderful, eccentric British spirit? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a great way to keep the birds off your crops, isn't it? Fly, fly oh my gosh. Cat. Can you imagine if you were, you know, a bird just going about your business? And, <laughs> you know, pirating someone's, heart, someone's garden that they worked very hard on, and all of a sudden this dead cat <laughs> comes flying at you. <laughs> They're flying now. 
You're not going to believe. They're going to go back to the, the the bird family. You're not going to believe this. This is what I saw. <laughs> Are you drunk again? <laughs> <laughs> All right. That um, that's going to do it for the show. Uh, episode four, four, five. Uh, thank you, everyone, for uh, sending in your feedback and joining us for the live uh, show and uh, all that stuff. And if you are new and you want to learn more about the crew and the community and other good stuff, you can head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com, our website. We have the library there. Uh, Librarian Tiffany um, manages that. We have a Plain Tales page, which has extra information that uh, Nick puts in there for us and pictures and that kind of stuff that accompany his uh, plain tales and uh, merchandise and information about the coffee fund. We have the community calendar and, uh, and much, much more. So please check it out. Airlinepilotguy.com, the website. And we're also on social media or what we like to call the social meets. Check out the social meets. You can head over to twitter.com. We are at APG crew. You can also find us at facebook.com slash airline pilot guy and Instagram. We're also at APG crew. So come and join the community there. Come join us. And we look forward to seeing you on the social meets. Absolutely. And also we have a Slack team and uh, let's see if we can get the microphone turned up here in the, in the restroom. Don't worry about that. Uh, oh, there he is. Uh, if you're watching the video, there's Hillel. And uh, let's see. Okay, well, towel off and tell us about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K. Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1 and see you in Slack. I said towel off. Okay. okay, I'm sorry. Sorry you had to hear that. All right. Um, Sounds like it needs a doctor. <laughs> you might. Yes. A urologist. Not this, not this doctor. Yeah. <laughs> not my specialty. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, um, oh, we also have a big, you know, our producer director, Liz, um, does a lot of work on the show before the show and after, but even more nowadays uh, during the show. She's doing a lot of stuff in the background and helping Tell us me with about the. It. Uh, overlays and video clips and everything else going on so and, and just in general keeps us straight mostly me so uh, a big round of applause to liz our producer director in toronto Thank you, liz. ontario canada and uh, we really appreciate all the hard work liz and until next time wishing you all clear skies unlimited visibility and tailwinds take care and god bless cheers y'all bye buddy Good day. 
such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline, not a guy I fly Friends, cause I'm always flying. I just don't have the time. But I can land this old plane, I can land it just fine. Airline, I got I fly.